0: This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano.
1: There are certain things that when you think of, you think of happening in the past you don't necessarily think of them happening these days. One of them is uh, the Black Plague, right? You don't really hear of many people these days dying of the Black Plague. Another is um, polio. Thankfully, these days we don't have a lot of people inflicted with polio who spend a substantial amount of their youth in an iron lung, and that's certainly a good thing. And one of the other things that I had thought was left in the past was maternal deaths. I was of the opinion that in Western civilization, and especially in the United States, that pregnancy and childbirth were safer than they've ever been. But some alarming numbers coming out last week showing a dramatic uptick in maternal mortality. The U.S. maternal mortality rate has hit its highest level since 1965. An increasing share of pregnant or recently pregnant women are facing untimely deaths. The CDC uh, last Thursday published a new report on the maternal mortality rates for 2021, and it showed an upward trend uh, in women who died of maternal causes in the U.S., In 2021, the report showed that 1,205 women died of maternal causes. That's an increase of more than 33% from the previous year and 46% more than the year before that. For every 100,000 live births in 2021, there were 32.9 maternal deaths compared with 23.8 in 2020 and 20.1 in 2019. So the World Health Organization defines maternal death as the death of a woman while pregnant or within 42 days of termination of pregnancy, irrespective of the duration and the site of the pregnancy. And this is incredibly alarming. The fact that we have seen such an uptick in the number of pregnant women dying in this country. I mean, just to put it in perspective, you are – If you're pregnant in the United States, you are 10 times more likely to die while pregnant than you would be if you were pregnant in Australia. And the biggest question I have about this is why do you think that's the case? Why are we seeing something that, given everything we know, given all our knowledge, given all our technology, given the fact that... uh, a lot of people at least, have health insurance in some form or another. Why are we seeing such an uptick in maternal death? 800-848-9222. Now, this was an increase across every race. However, black women experienced the largest share of uh, pregnant women dying. 69.9 for every 100,000 births. That's more than... Two and a half times the rate of white women. And the death rates also increased with age. In 2021, among women younger than 25, there were 20.4 deaths per 100,000 live births. That rose to 31.3 deaths for women between 25 and 39, and a whopping 138.5 for women 40 and older. So maybe that's... What we're doing here in the United States that they're not necessarily doing in Australia, maybe it's a result of women deciding to have children later in life than their counterparts in some other countries. But that means there was nearly a one hundred fifty percent increase in maternal deaths between the youngest and oldest age groups. Very alarming, very alarming. Amy Aynert, who's a doctor and the co-director of uh, cardio obstetrics at lehigh valley health network in pennsylvania she was not involved with the research but she reviewed the study findings and she told fox news digital unfortunately this is not new news well it's new to me i had no idea the united states according to her according to dr arnett the united states is one of the very few countries in the world with rising maternal mortality And she believes one reason is that women are delaying childbearing to later years and thus may have more chronic health conditions. Now, that stands to reason to me. That makes sense to me. I'm wondering if there are other factors. You know, depending on what media outlet you read, uh, depending on what expert you listen to, uh, all sorts of other folks are eager to cite all sorts of other factors, including, for instance, some saying. There's a rise in obesity and unhealthy lifestyles. They're pointing to that. Some people say it's a a lack of education among some socioeconomic uh, quarters. Some people are saying there's an increase in high blood pressure. Some people are saying that there's an increase in other risk factors. Heart disease is the leading cause of maternal mortality in the U.S. I do wonder if that's the case, if so much of this can be traced to the American diet. And how poor it is, and how many high pro- ultra-processed foods, and how much garbage Americans are eating, and if that's playing a role on American women here. But what doesn't make sense to me is I don't get the sense that back in the 80s that women were much healthier, or people in general were much healthier in their dietary habits. If anything, I feel like they're much more conscious of what they're eating now, at least more aware of what they're eating. But maybe it's that factor, maybe it's that factor of the older parents these days. Tell me what you think. I find this incredibly alar- alarming. And the fact that this wasn't on page one of every major newspaper, I think, is very telling about what we prioritize as a society these days. As far as I'm concerned, this, is, this should be a priority, this should be priority close to number one for everybody. Only about 40 percent of U.S. women who gave birth in 2019 had favorable heart health before getting pregnant. That's according to a new report by the American Heart Association. So uh, this one doctor, Dr. Honor, uh, that spoke to Fox News, she said we need to make changes to improve the cardiovascular health of women before pregnancy in order to lower our nation's maternal mortality. So why did it change? I wonder, I mean, is it just a prevalence of unhealthy foods that people are consuming? So uh, tell me what you think. We got an action packed show for you today. Coming up in a few minutes, we're going to talk with uh, somebody that we've talked to before and who I found very interesting. Gabriel Shipton. He's a filmmaker. He also happens to be the brother of Julian Assange and his newest film, Ithaca, is opening this week. Uh, I believe it, it's, uh, or Ithaca, it, it opens this week, and it's all about telling the story from the perspective of the Assange family. And so I'm very much looking forward to talking with him and finding out what the latest is with this Julian Assange saga. And then uh, we will do a as much as we can in terms of mail in the 2 o'clock hour. I have always been sa- – I keep saying, you know, we'll get to it on Tuesday. We'll get to it on Tuesday. People send in mail questions for uh, Ask Frank Anything, and oftentimes I don't get to them during the show. I- I've taken to just not including email questions uh, during Ask Frank Anything. So we're going to squeeze in as many email questions as we can. And if you have a question that you want to email in and have me address it during the second hour of the show, you can email it to me at M o r a n l. At wabcradio.com, that's Frank Morano at wabcradio.com. Then in our third hour, very controversial, we're going to talk with former Republican Congressman from Iowa and the author of the new book "Walking Through Fire: My Heart and my My Fight for the Heart and Soul of America," Congressman Steve King. You remember Steve King? He was something of a pariah in Washington, D.C. Well, I'm going to ask him if he regrets any of the comments that he made that made him a pariah. We'll get into that and a bunch of other things uh, in the news. But to me, this data from the CDC should cause all of us to stand up and take notice. The maternal death rate in this country has hit the highest level since 1965. And I'm curious if you have an opinion as to why that's the case. 800 That's 800 848 Let me begin with Leo on the Upper East Side. Hello, Leo.
2: Good morning, Frank. Uh, if you let me, I would mix two subjects. One of them you spoke about three weeks ago, and it's related to this, uh, why there is a less and less kids uh, born, actually. Uh, the the amount yearly is decreasing and the communists have a few things when they number one the uh, communists was healthy for the for the pregnant man, man, women not to have the mortality up and also they was increasing the uh, the yearly amount can, can I give you just the three yeah I, i'm not health? i'm
1: not sure i'm following what you're saying leo did you say the communists
2: yes in a communist country they was they was oh. uh, based on is the family, the family is, the, is the, the foundation of the country. They was very really giving it a, a lot of thoughts and this, but you was trying to find uh, answers: what we doing wrong, or how to uh, turn it around. It was a couple of weeks ago uh, about the mortality. Uh, women in a communist, if they choose so, they could already at second month of pregnancy. They home and they was getting paid for two years, hundred percent, hundred percent of their check. They were not losing any money from second month, and then they could take another two years when they was getting paid sixty percent. So See, they stay until fourth year of the child. Well, Actually, I told. So do
1: you think part of the problem is pregnant women are rushing back into the workplace or delaying taking or maternity leave?
2: six months working.
1: Right, I see. Well, hey, that's actually a, a reasonable point, Frank,
2: Uh can I tell you the other two things?
1: Re- very quickly, though, ways- Leo, because I want to get to some other people before we talk to Gabriel Shipton. Very quickly.
2: <laughs> you have 10 callers who you could not figure out what is the problem. I have the answer because they figure it out.
1: Okay. Are you going to okay,
2: tell uh, so, number one, and I'm not saying it's a good thing. My generation was screwed up by that, but in the Czechoslovakia, at the day when girls and boys got their uh, their driver license, I mean their their passport, when they hit fifteen, they could have sex with the ninety year, year ninety year old guy. So the sexuality was very very free uh,
1: uh,
2: a uh, right, guy uh, uh, thank like...
1: you Leo I, I think we're off the beaten path in terms of maternal mortality on this one Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. that's eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Jacqueline in Brooklyn what do you think?
3: Good morning Frank morning. Um, I think as you pointed out um, people don't know that they have maybe undiagnosed trouble with their heart that happens a lot even with children these days um when i happen to have been born in 1965 i was telling kenny uh, i was six pounds seven ounces i was a small baby at that time that generation they encouraged the women to try to gain as little weight as possible mm. to try to keep the size of the baby as small as possible to make the delivery as easy as possible now today over the decades in the united states diabetes is out of control um, weight is uh, out of control, blood pressure is out of control, so I think it uh, has a lot to do with diet. You know, we didn't have all the fast food, we didn't have all that stuff. TV dinners just came out in the 60s. So it's got a lot to do, I think, with diet and, and the poor the poor food and the poor diet, in addition to the other things I mentioned.
1: Yeah, but, well, hey, I think you're right, Jacqueline. I think that makes a lot of sense, and at least some of the doctors talked to in a bunch of the articles about this, have cited some of those same uh, factors. So let's say that's the case. What do we do about it, right? I mean, uh, do we just uh, increase the the need for awareness about the importance of eating healthy? Is it as simple as that? Or is there something more that can be done, either from a healthcare perspective or from, I don't know, a governmental perspective or from any other perspective? Because this is I mean, maybe no one else cares. I find this pretty alarming. 800 848 That's 800 848 Let me say hello to Lisa on Long Island. Hello, Lisa.
4: Yes, hi. How are you? Good. I just wanted to know, does the CDC check these women who uh, passed away while, you know, during their pregnancy, um, if they were vaccinated and boosted from the COVID vaccine. Because no one knows the long term effect what has hap- what can happen. Not that I'm against vaccines because I'm not. But do they check how many of those women got vaccinated and boosted?
1: You know, that's a great question. And I and I don't know. Uh I don't know the answer to that. Um it's a it's a good question. And I and I don't know. If they have the numbers, I, I, I haven't seen them. Or they
5: probably
1: won't tell anybody because they still want to push all these vaccines and boosters. Yeah, well, and and in and fact... Ten and, years will know. <laughs> yeah, well, thanks, Lisa. And in fact, health officials are stressing that people who are pregnant should get vaccinated against COVID and that doing so offers protection both for the mother and the baby. And during the early days of the pandemic in 2020, there was very limited information about the risks and the benefits of the vaccine during pregnancy, prompting some women to hold off on getting vaccinated But uh, now there is mounting evidence of the importance of getting vaccinated for the protection of serious illness and the risks of covid during pregnancy, according to health officials. So take that for what it's worth. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Adrian is on the Upper West Side. Hello, Adrian.
6: A couple of thoughts about the the death of the mothers and, or mothers to be i think some of it has to do with the advanced stage I, I was at i had surgery at the uh, brigham and women's in boston which is a pretty famous you know place and a lot a big you know big gynecological uh, center and the i noticed when i was in there i was there overnight So many of the nurses were super pregnant. I thought, this is weird. It's like, Stefford wise, why are you you all pregnant? The nurses were
1: were super pregnant, you said?
6: Well, they're like like ready to burst pregnant, like Uh obviously pregnant, not fat, but they were clearly pregnant. So I I commented to one of them. She was checking my stitches, and she said, I said to her, you know, see what? There's so many pregnant people. What's going on? She goes, Well, and you're all like, you know, they were young. And she said, Well, we see the complications. We all wanted to have our babies you know, now because we see the kind, and I was, I I was like, wow, because, you know, in my career, most of the women waited, I mean, 40 would be considered young. I knew so many that were over 40 trying to get pregnant. And then you have to go through all these machinations to get pregnant, unless, you know, some people are very fertile myrtles, but you know, you have to go through a lot of stuff that's hard on the body. And then the other thing is many of them, again, you know, I was in a very high stress uh, career uh, for much of my life and they did not want husbands. And I'm wondering if the stress, just at a certain point, they didn't find the guy of their dreams. They figure, I don't need the guy. I just want the kid. So they could just you know get pregnant and then think they could do it on their own but the stress level uh i think you know maybe was greater for their bodies then You know, that's very,
1: get. very interesting, uh, Adrian. Uh, that's all very interesting. And I, and I think that underscores what some of the P- experts are saying, that uh, if you're going to have children, you're better off, if you want to avoid complications, having them as, as young as can be. Uh, Adrian, thank you. Well, not as young as can be, but younger, under the age of 25, seems to be the optimal age in terms of avoiding um maternal mortality. Obviously, there are other factors, though, too. 800 848 Zach is in Brooklyn. Hello, Zach.
7: Hey. Um, so, there's a lot of people who, you know, high up with a lot of money and a lot of power who want a lot of bad things for everyone. Um, I believe, I mean, two main things paired together are, are one of the reasons why, which is actual life. if you ever heard of that, which uh, is essentially making babies in baby bags artificially. But the vaccine um and what it, what has happened in the last two, three years? you know the vaccine rolled out lots of complications with that um so yeah I, th- that that's that's my answer Well,
1: what is the first thing uh, take me through the first thing you mentioned again
7: ectolife, ectolife. Never heard of life
1: it? no, fill me in on that
7: so it's um essentially creating babies in a uh, a baby lab, artificial wounds. Um, they, uh, they had the idea, I guess, back in 2017, and it looks like they, uh, are going through with it in, uh, Yemen.
1: But are women carrying these babies to term?
7: From the, from the ectolife? Yeah. Oh, no, no. There's no people involved. Right,
1: but so that wouldn't affect these maternal death numbers at all.
7: Well, my, my point is that it's the vaccine. Okay. The vaccine is the catalyst and then ectolife is the end goal, um, in terms of, you know, monetizing every part of human life.
1: Yeah, I I don't think that's the case, uh, Zach, respectfully. Um, But I'll tell you, something's going on here. You know, they say something's rotten in Denmark. Shakespeare said it. Something's rotten in the United States because maternal death rates are higher in this country than in any other high-income country in the world. The rates in France, the U.K., and Canada were 8 10, and 11 deaths per 100,000 live births in 2020. And yet we've got, we've got double that? I mean, that's crazy. That is absolutely crazy. So cardiovascular conditions such as pulmonary embolisms, uncontrolled bleeding, and problem stemming for hypertension are the leading causes of pregnancy-related deaths in this country. In, according to the CDC some pregnancy and postpartum complications probably do stem from rising obesity according to the experts uh, around 42 percent of US adults are considered obese nearly half have high blood pressure around 11% have diabetes 38% have prediabetes, diabetes 800 David is in the Bronx hello David
8: yes good morning There's two issues here that I'd like to talk about very quickly. The first thing is this notion that women should be giving birth at younger ages. The fact of the matter is, and you know this, women in order to have a career, they can't afford to have children at a young age because it basically freezes you economically. So women do wait till later, but that's because of the way our economy works now. Now, the other issue is a lot of these women that we're talking about are minority women, women of color, who have these issues that you talked about, high blood pressure, diabetes, poor nutrition, at much higher rates than the general population. And we don't have free health care in this country. You look at the countries that you mentioned, France, the UK, I mean, even Denmark, women are, are not having children. At and Australia, in those and Australia. Exactly. They're doing the same things we're doing, but they don't have the high death rate. But they also don't have high uh, numbers of minorities and and extremely poor people. This is an economic issue and it's also a food issue because let's be honest, Frank, I live in the Bronx. The highest rates of diabetes in New York City and amputations and all these other conditions that we're talking about are in these areas and it's because of the cheap processed food. You go into a bodega The cheapest beverage you can get is like a $1 bottle of of high-fructose corn syrup soda, and that's what kids are drinking. Look at the number of fat—not fat—overweight children walking around New York City. This is a time bomb, and it concerns me. I've been diabetic since I was in my teens because all we drank was soda and cheap fruit juice, and look at the condition I'm in at 50. This is a time bomb. A
1: a lot of what you said makes sense uh, to me, uh, David. But let's look at your situation, right? Um, when you grew up, your your female compatriots probably ate and drank the same kind of things that you did. So why then did we not see these alarming rates of pregnancy mortal of uh, maternal mortality uh, around the, uh, around around ten years ago, fifteen years ago, twenty years ago, when they were still eating that stuff in the Bronx?
8: Yeah, but you know what? The, 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 this obesity problem has gotten much worse. I yeah. mean, you look at—I mean, just—I mean, before I lost my vision nine years ago, walking around New York City, I was shocked at how overweight the children were. That it wasn't like that when I was growing up, and I don't think it was like it when you were growing up. There is something going on in this country. I don't know. if It's because of kids aren't playing, or or, or the video games, or whatever. But there is something going on, and it's really bad because as a diabetic. The numbers are, are exploding. They are exploding, Frank. And, you know, I don't want people to end up like I have, you know, because honestly, my life is over at 51. I don't want that for anybody else. I really honestly hope people watch what their children are eating and make sure that they get physical activity because you don't want to be blind at, 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 in your mid-40s like I ended up
1: doing. Well, David, first of all, I would say that, um, you know, obviously it's – horrible that you lost your sight but i don't think your life's over by a long stretch you got a lot of energy and uh, a lot of gifts and i saw even michael smirconish read your tweet the other day and if there's anybody that's not letting blindness stop them from communicating their ideas and their thoughts to the world it's you so uh, don't be so sure to uh don't be so quick to say your life's over
8: let me just say one quick thing frank though and i'll tell you why i said that And I don't like talking about this because it's not easy. The worst part about being blind is that most people treat you like you're invisible. I used to go out all the time, you know, to bars and whatever, and used to meet people. I I don't go out anymore. I stopped because when I would go out, it was like I didn't exist. And that's a horrible way to feel because most people, I've been told they don't know what to say you know, how to talk to a blind person. But you know what? The worst thing you can do to someone like me is to pretend that I'm not there because being treated like you don't exist is the worst thing ever. Oh,
1: I don't doubt it. David, thank you. I appreciate thank the insight. You. We'll talk again soon, I'm sure. All right. Uh, we'll continue with your calls on this in a moment. But I am very excited about a new film that's out this week. It's called Ithaca. I believe I'm pronouncing it correctly. And it's told from the perspective of Julian Assange's family. Gabriel Shipton, who's Julian Assange's brother, and the filmmaker that made this film is going to join us in a moment. And then we'll get back to your phone calls. Very excited to talk with him. I uh, I, I think that what is being done to Julian Assange is one of the great injustices in the world right now and um uh, shame on president trump and shame on president biden for not giving him a full pardon and for uh, going forward with these uh, th- this ridiculous prosecution we'll get into it straight ahead
0: the other side of midnight with frank morano it's the other side of midnight with frank morano
9: You make me feel so young. You make me feel so spring has sprung. And every time I
2: see you grin, I'm such
9: a happy individual. The moment that you speak, I wanna go play hide and seek. I want to go
1: and bounce the moon Just like a toy balloon Well, spring has indeed sprung you It is officially spring Which is like exciting One of my of favorite times, seasons, that's for sure Definitely in my top four I have been following the case of Julian Assange for a long time, uh, but probably not so long as Gabriel Shipton, a filmmaker, and Julian Assange's brother, who has a new film out this week called Ithaca, which we're going to talk about. Gabriel, it's great to talk with you again. Thanks for joining me on the radio.
10: Yeah, good to be with you.
1: Uh, Give folks an update, if you would, first, before we talk about the movie and uh, what it's about. What is your brother up to now? What's the current nature? uh, What's his status as we speak here?
10: Well, he's been in a maximum security prison just outside of London. Uh, he He will have been in there four years on April 11th. He is not serving a sentence. He's not convicted of any crime. He's there solely as a remand prisoner related to an extradition request from the U.S. National Security DOJ, who are trying to charge him uh, with uh, espionage for publishing uh, material in the public interest.
1: And uh, remind us, this is the 20th anniversary of the beginning of the war in uh, Iraq. Remind us of his role in uncovering some of the lies that the government told the public about what was going on in Iraq and Afghanistan. What exactly did WikiLeaks do uh, with respect to the Iraq War and the Afghanistan War that was so significant?
10: Well, WikiLeaks published uh, the Chelsea Manning uh, Leaks. They published uh, 400,000 Iraq war logs, uh, 75,000 Afghanistan war logs. And really, the Iraq war logs really revealed uh, the true nature of of the war in Iraq. Uh, 15,000 unaccounted for civilian deaths um, that, that really showed the people, you know, what was really going on in Iraq. You know, we were being told at the time... Uh, particularly in Australia, we were we were a part of the coalition, and we were being told that the war was going well. But what we weren't being told was about all these civilian deaths, uh, and also the the, the famous uh, collateral murder video. Uh, and that's a video of a helicopter gunship uh, that is shown uh, mowing down two Reuters journalists, and then also uh, shooting the Good Samaritans. Uh, that came to save them, and that includes two children who just happened to be in the van uh, that stopped to save these wounded journalists wow. so really that was a sort of catalyst uh for the beginning of the end of the Iraq war, and it saved many many lives uh, not just of uh, Iraqis but also of you know u s Australian service people uh, who were being sent there uh for for this war. Um, that the public didn't really know what was going on, but but through those releases, through WikiLeaks releases and the leaks from Ch- Chelsea Manning, the public was able to sort of mount a campaign uh, for that for that war to to be come to an end.
1: And um, I, I know different families have different uh, different dynamics, but uh, what is the difference in age between you and Julian? Do, were you guys in one another's lives growing up? And And what can you tell folks about what Julian was like as a young person? Because so many of us only know him as this adult public figure and now as someone that's unconvicted and incarcerated.
10: Yeah, well, I mean, Julian and I got to know each other when I was uh, in my teens, he's 11 years older than me. And so, you know, looking back on those times, uh, you know, those were really happy times uh, in in our lives, Uh, you know, getting to know, I was getting to know him and he was getting to know me. And um, you really looked up to him as as an older brother, somebody who, you know, uh, he was a gentle genius. He had this knack of... Explaining really complicated things to you in a very simple way, so you never uh, felt, uh, you know, you never felt um, lower than him. He always sort of uh, brought you in and and really communicated in a in a way that I found very unusual and, and is very rare. Uh, and so he just was so generous with his time, and and always, even when he was being detained, uh, you know, one way or another, he's been detained for the last. 13 years in the UK, uh, even when he was in the Ecuadorian embassy where he was for seven years. Uh, he was always so generous with his time and, and really listening to, you know, what was going on in our lives. And, and we we had a really great relationship, or still do, but obviously I don't see him so much since he's in, uh, in the prison there. But, you know, he's got two young children, uh, a four-year-old and a five-year-old. Uh, he's a very loving father. The children go and visit him in the prison. Uh, he reads them stories um, and, uh, you know, helps them do coloring and drawing. Uh, so this is the side of Julian that you see uh, in Ithaca, the film that that I produced um, that is showing at the Alamo Draft House in Lower Manhattan starting on Friday.
1: And uh, we're going to uh, play, folks, the, uh, the trailer to uh, – it, it is pronounced Ithaca, not Ithaca.
10: Yes, that's right. It's Thank you.
1: Yeah, I apologize for mispronouncing it uh, earlier. G- give folks an idea of the conditions that he's currently being held in in London. Is he being well taken care of? Is he, having, be, is he being mistreated? Is he having a tough time? I, I believe you've been to visit him in his current accommodations. How's he? How's he feeling? How's he being
11: treated?
10: Well, he's in the most harshest uh, prison in the UK. It's called uh, Belmarsh. It's a maximum security prison. Uh, it's where they keep the most, uh, you know, dangerous, uh, violent prisoners in the UK. It is, you know, when you go and see him, you you have to go through this, uh, you know, whole process, searching inside your mouth, underneath your feet, uh, a dog a sniffer dog comes and smells your hair. And his children have to go through this procedure as well. So you can imagine, you know, for a four or five-year-old, uh, a dog coming and sniffing their hair is not, uh, you know, it's it's not really... Uh, it's an oppressive situation for us, his family, but more so for Julian. And it's, you know, it's really lost on people. He's not actually convicted of any crime. He's uh, what they call a remand prisoner. There are 800 prisoners in this prison, 20% of whom are convicted murderers. Julian is only one of two uh, remand prisoners, and he's uh, totally non-violent. So it's a sort of punishment by process, what's happening to him. Uh, He has one last avenue to appeal in the high courts. He has submitted his application to appeal and has been waiting now five months for the high court to either approve an appeal and set a date for an appeal, or they could reject the appeal and Julian could be extradited to the U.S. Within 24
1: hours. We're talking with Gabriel Shipton. He's the brother of Julian Assange and a filmmaker whose newest film, Ithaca, is uh, debuting this week. It's playing at the Alamo Draft House here here in Manhattan. But uh, there are a bunch of other places that uh, you will probably be able to see it as well. Uh, And uh, a lot of folks are going to be asking, uh, based on what you said, Gabriel, Why wouldn't Julian welcome the opportunity to take his case to trial and make his case before a jury and uh, and hopefully see roll the dice and see what they say as to his guilt or lack thereof?
10: Yeah, I mean, that's a very good question. Uh, This is a political case, and we know that because uh, in recently in Mike Pompeo's uh, Mike Pompeo's memoir. Uh, Mike Pompeo admitted to really pushing this case uh, as CIA director um, and as uh, head of the State Department. Uh, He also admitted to uh, convincing Ecuador, lobbying Ecuador, successfully lobbying Ecuador uh, to kick Julian out or to allow the UK police in to arrest Julian. And so it has that political nature to it and that political push behind it. So it's very unlikely that Julian will get a fair trial here in the US. Another thing, he has been tried in the Eastern District of Virginia. Now, this court in the Eastern District of Virginia has a hundred percent conviction rate. Its conviction rate is is the same as a court in Beijing. So that is the sort of prospect, uh, the sort of justice that. That Julian uh, is is facing if if he if he's extradited, and that's why we're fighting it uh, with all our might. Uh, John Kiriakou, who was the CIA uh, whistleblower, he blew the whistle on uh, the CIA torture black sites. He was tried in this same espionage uh, court in the Eastern District of Virginia, and he hired O.J. Simpson's uh, jury uh, chooser and. Uh, the, the, this guy said to Kiriakou, look, if it was anywhere else, I would say, let's do it. But in this court, the jury is going to be made up of, made up of intelligence contractors, mm. CIA, military. It's stacked. It's totally stacked against you, and you'll never win there.
1: Here is a trailer to the film Ithaca.
12: Can we talk about your contact with Julian. ...through
13: his childhood. It's part of the story. I think, it
14: basically. isn't part of the story. Yeah. The story is that, I, you know, I'm attempting in my own modest way yeah. to get Julian out of it.
13: Julian Assange is the hero of our time. He was the darling of the left. All of a sudden,
1: he's a puppet of Russia.
14: My name is John Shipton. I'm Julian Assange's yeah, father. Name
15: wikileaks found that julian assange has been arrested
4: one of the most notorious and controversial figures in custody assange will remain behind bars until that extradition hearing which has been set down for the end of february
16: i urge the department of justice to drop the charges
15: the maximum jail sentence of 175
13: years because he published the truth
16: how does it feel to be the father
3: of such a controversial figure? Somebody who's known around the world.
10: We've him on the phone before. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. What are you talking about on a on a kind of regular basis?
13: If Julian is extradited to the United States to face these charges, he will be the first but not the
17: last.
14: What are your worst fears? That it just collapses under restraint.
0: It looks as though
14: what journalists do for a living is seen to be a criminal act. I mean, so keep it up, man. Thank you. I wish I had your energy. I really do. I'm done. I'm done. I I'm Why do you think
3: there's not a great public love and support?
14: This is really a trivia, a good question. What's at stake? If he
12: goes down,
18: so will journalism.
12: But if people walked away from this film understanding you, how would you feel about that?
14: We're here and this has only come about because we have a child and Mm. and we want to get him out.
1: Gabriel, uh, tell me why you made this film and what you're hoping that people take away from it.
10: Well, Julian has experienced, you know, 10 10 plus years of uh, demonization and dehumanization uh, through the media, through the legacy and prestige media. And, you know, what we saw or what we saw when Julian was taken into prison was this real... Uh, sort of a disconnect about what we what we saw in the media, but how we, his family and those closest to him, uh, experienced what was going on. And so this film is a real attempt to sort of set the story straight and tell it from a different perspective that people might not have seen, but also uh, really go behind the scenes in the fight to free Julie and follow uh, a father fighting to free his son and a wife fighting to free her husband, Uh, these two uh, normal individuals who are just like any of us that are at the centre of this now global fight uh, for freedom of expression, uh, for uh, transparency in government, and for a free press.
1: If you were to explain what drives Julian and why he does what he does and why he's done it for so long, uh, going out of his way to publish uh, information that uh, governments clearly don't want revealed, or in some cases, as was the case with Hillary Clinton's emails, that campaigns may not want revealed. What is he after? What drives him?
10: Well, Julian's been you know, pretty clear about this. Ever since you know his early activism and and into the early days for WikiLeaks, and it's really uh, it's it's this thing that I think we all yearn for, uh, and and it's justice, and and it's more justice for for more people, not just justice for a few, but justice uh, for the weak, and uh, not just the powerful, and through his work for WikiLeaks uh, and exposing. Uh, powerful people uh, and the way they use their power to hide their own crimes or the way they use their power to uh, rig democratic primaries. Uh, Julian has always strived uh, to give, or not give, but use WikiLeaks and use this, uh, the internet encryption and these different forms of technology to really bring justice to more people and not just the few uh, elite.
1: The, an attorney representing the government a few years ago, James Lewis, said that uh, Julian Assange's extradition was nothing to do with his exposure of war crimes or embarrassing the U.S. government, but it was entirely about releasing documents that put people at risk. Uh, he was speaking on uh, the first day of a week-long hearing about the request by the U.S. government to extradite the WikiLeaks founder. I've heard this from other people as well uh, who say that uh, Julian Assange, through his work, has actually served to put uh, American servicemen's lives at risk. Is there any truth to that?
10: No, no. no I mean, It's total fiction. I mean, it's a spin to make people believe... Uh, that these charges are justified. Uh, during Chelsea Manning's trial, so the the leaks that Julian is charged with publishing, uh, during Chelsea Manning's trial, there was an uh, ex-general who admitted that they had done... Obama spent $6 million trying to find uh, somebody who had come to harm through these releases, through Chelsea Manning's releases during Chelsea Manning's trial. And the general in charge of that investigation admitted in Chelsea Manning's trial that they could not find anyone who came to harm. So it's admitted by the government itself, uh, by the prosecution itself, that uh, they cannot find anybody who has come to harm uh, through these releases. And in fact, it's the complete opposite. You know, these releases have led to the end of the war in Iraq. You know, they've saved countless Uh, amount of lies they've brought justice to millions and millions of people around the world so it's the complete opposite that is true Uh, and and the people who are making these accusations uh, you know don't forget these are the ones who are trying to hide their crime and this is a very common tactic you know Julian shone the light on them and so what they've tried to do is turn it around and shine it on him But really, all he's done uh, was publish their classified crimes, the crimes that they had tried to hide from us, the people who vote for them, the people who delegate our power to these elected officials. We have a right to know what they do. You know, it's our taxes that that pay for all this stuff. Uh, We have a, a democratic right to know what they do in our name.
1: One of the people that has been on the receiving end of some WikiLeaks truth bombs over the last few years has been former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. She was at an event four years ago, and she said that your brother must answer for what he's done. This is what she said at the time.
18: Well, look, I I think um, it is is clear from the indictment that came out. It's not about... uh, Punishing journalism—it's about uh, assisting the hacking of the military computer to steal uh, information from uh, the United States government. And uh, look, I—I'll I, wait and see uh, what happens with the charges and how uh, it proceeds. But you know, he—he he skipped bail in the UK. You know, Sweden had those charges, which have been dropped um, in uh, the last several years. But the bottom line is uh, he has to answer for what he has done, at least as it's been charged. I do think it's a little ironic that he may be the only uh, foreigner that uh, this administration would welcome to the United States. (laughs)
1: Um, putting aside that joke at the end there, Gabriel, what about that? Those who say that, look, he's not being put on trial for journalism or publishing classified information. He's being put on trial because he assisted someone into hacking into a computer and stealing government documents. That's the crime here, not just publishing. It's not journalism. What do you say to that argument?
10: Well, I think you know Hillary Clinton really needs to go back and read the indictment because uh, I've read the indictment and what the allegation, the substance of the allegation is that uh, Julian helped Chelsea Manning to hide her identity. And it wasn't uh, It the timing of that. Uh, this is just the allegation as well. This is what's in the indictment. The timing of that was after Chelsea Manning had provided all, all the information to WikiLeaks. And so, but, but that alleg- allegation that, that a journalist, a publisher, helped a source hide their identity. So if you think about what that used to be before the days of the internet, before the days of encryption, you know, a journalist saying to their source, you know, don't use your home telephone. Go around the corner and use a payphone so that nobody knows that you're calling me. That's all. That's the allegation. That's what journalists do every day. Encryption is now common uh among the journalist community because our digital footprints are more and more trackable and so this this element this part of this uh the part of this indictment actually uh is making journalistic activity illegal if a journalist shows a source how to hide their identity digitally then that this indictment says that's a criminal act
1: uh, Gabriel, I appreciate the time. If people are outside of the New York area, is there a way for them to see the film or is there a way for them to be kept up to date on when the film might be coming to their city?
10: Yes, sure. They can go to Ithaca Movie. That's I-T-H-A-K-A movie.com. And we have a watch the film section there that has all our dates uh, playing all around the U.S. Uh, my father and I are doing Q&A screenings uh, all over the country we've done we've done about 20 so far i think we've got 30 to go 50 50 something in total uh yeah so looking forward to seeing people wherever they are talking to them uh, answering their questions you know shaking hands giving them hugs uh, there's a lot of support for julian in the us and uh, we're always uh, our hearts are always warmed when we come here because we're always el- welcome with open arms
1: Gabriel Shipton, thank you very much. Best of luck to you, your brother, and your whole family. Thanks. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call, 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.
0: The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano. Be on your single bed. I want to hear all about it. Get to your love, your chest, though. I feel the tears, and you oh, not alone. When I hold you well, I won't let go. Why should we
9: care for what they're selling?
1: This is the great George Ezra. I absolutely love George Ezra as a singer. I have no idea what kind of person he is. He could be, um, you know, uh, pushing old ladies into traffic for all I know. But what a voice. He might be my favorite singer out of uh, any solo artist that's, uh, that's around these days. All right, we got a lot to get to uh, next hour. We'll take your calls. Uh, we'll go through the mail. If you want to send me um, something to read, you can do so. Frank.Morano at com. Uh, that's Frank.M-O-R-A-N-O at radio.com And let me ask you the question. What happened to Flight 370? Keep asking questions. weeks ago was the ninth anniversary of the disappearance of Malaysia Airlines Flight 370, and I'm sure a lot of you remember this, but for those of you that don't, uh, Malaysian Airlines Flight 370 was an international passenger jet operated by Malaysia Airlines that disappeared on March 8th, 2014 while flying from Kuala Lumpur International Airport in Malaysia to its planned destination, Beijing. And the crew of this Boeing 777 last communicated with air traffic control around 38 minutes after takeoff when the flight was over the South China Sea. The aircraft was lost from ATC radar screen minutes later, but was tracked by military radar for another hour, deviating westward from its planned flight path, crossing the Malay Peninsula, and it left radar range 200 nautical miles northwest of Penang Island in northwestern peninsula, Malaysia. There were 239 people on board. They've all been presumed dead. And assuming they are dead, The disappearance of Flight 370 was the deadliest incident involving a Boeing 777 in history. It is the deadliest incident in Malaysia Airlines history, at least until it was uh, surpassed by uh, Malaysia Airlines Flight 17, which was shot down when it was flying over eastern Ukraine. But the search for the missing airplane became one of the most expensive searches in the history of aviation. It focused initially on the South China Sea before analysis of the aircraft's automated communications uh, indicated a possible crash site somewhere in the southern Indian Ocean. And the lack of official information in the days immediately following prompted fierce criticism from the Chinese public, mainly from the relatives of the passengers, as most people on board Flight 370 were of Chinese origin. So there's a a new Netflix documentary that I have not seen yet, but a lot of people are talking about. It's called MH370, The Plane That Disappeared. And, look, we're nine years removed from this. There's a lot of theories about what happened. Some people think it was hijacked. Some people believe it was a terrorist attack. Some people believe that uh, North Korea had something to do with it. There was a story circulating on Reddit. That MH370 had sufficient fuel to be hijacked to North Korea, as was done back in the 60s. Some people say that uh, something else happened. My question for you is, what do you think happened? Obviously, nobody knows. But a number of theories suggest that maybe the disappearance had to do with the result of a fire in the cockpit. Another number of people say uh, Rush Limbaugh, for instance speculated that the aircraft might have been shot down because we have seen civilian aircraft shot down by military forces in the past. That happened with an Iranian flight that the United States shot down back in 1988. If you have a theory, let me know. 800-848-9222. I think it's fascinating. I don't know if you've seen this documentary yet, but I'm going to watch it. I heard uh, Michael Smarkanish talking about it and uh he interviewed the filmmaker behind it and it looks really interesting and it looks exactly like my kind of thing uh, a mystery that we don't quite know how what, what happened and uh, there's a lot of theories as to what might have happened but uh here is the trailer from MH370 the plane that disappeared it's a british docu series it's on netflix it was uh directed by louise malkinson but uh, a lot of people have uh, participated in this, and it's based on uh, a lot of journalistic uh, – one journalist in particular, Jeff Wise, is one of the key figures in this docuseries, and he's one of the first voices that you hear in this uh, trailer for this Netflix documentary. Give me a call. Tell me what you think happened. 800 848 Planes go up. Planes go down. What planes don't
12: do is just vanish off the face of the earth.
16: We have breaking
3: news. Malaysia Airlines confirms that has lost contact with a plane carrying 227 passengers. It
2: seems to have vanished into the air. What do we tell the family members? What do we tell the media?
18: My daughter asked me,
7: where is Papa? It's just so unimaginable.
6: I felt completely shattered. I lived in denial about the plane having some sort of crash.
18: The world
3: stops. All of a sudden, it's not possible. It's a nightmare. Reveillez-moi. What happens next is like a rip in the fabric of reality.
12: Theories about the missing plane are going viral. It's possible it was hijacked.
18: We don't know. This very mysterious and very suspicious cargo. A pilot's home flight simulator was removed by police. I have the real evidence. It's there, and you can't deny that.
1: Never in history have 239 people been declared dead on the basis of mathematics alone.
18: Some debris has been found. Who planted there? Who brought the peace
3: there?
9: They are lying from the beginning. They are lying to the whole world. MH370 is not just an unsolved mass murder.
12: It's potentially an act of war.
8: How is it possible for an airline to disappear out of air?
19: Someone knows the answer. The question is who?
1: So it looks really interesting. I'm curious what you think happened. 800 Hijacking, terrorist attack, North Korea. Was it, uh, was it uh, a fire? There's even something called the phantom cell phone theory. Have you heard this one? Some speculated that the passengers were still alive but could not answer their cell phones. This was based on early reports that family members of Flight 370 passengers heard ringing as opposed to just a busy and an off signal while calling the passengers' phones. Uh, This was after the disappearance, though. That that was challenged by some wireless analysts who said that the network might still produce ringbacks as it searches for a connection. Some people believe it was uh, a suicide by the pilot or the crew. Some people believe that the cockpit had uh, the mandated anti-hijacker fortified doors that could prevent locked-out crew or passengers from interfering with a suicide or a hijacking by the crew. Some people, as I said, believe it was a fire or that it was shot down. Some people even say it might have been a cyber attack. The hypothesis is that a cyber attack may have been carried out on Flight 370 based on statements made by Sally Levelsley, a former scientific advisor to the U.K. government. Whether existing security on commercial flights is sufficient to prevent such an attack is also a matter of some debate. Boeing says that's not what happened. They dismissed that. They're not saying what did happen, but they dismissed that. Some believe that there was a vertical entry into the sea. The Texas A&M University professor, uh, Gung Chen, has argued that the plane may have entered the sea vertically. Any other angle would have splintered the airplane to many pieces, which would have necessarily been found already. Now, there are also some whacked out theories. Um, I I say whacked out. Nothing's whacked out, right? Because we don't know what happened. There's a theory that uh, actually Don Lemon put out there that Flight 370 might have been consumed by a black hole. He asked on CNN. See, these are the kind of things you have to do when you have to fill 24 hours of a news cycle. He asked on CNN whether it was preposterous that it could have happened. And he was criticized like crazy by the DOT for this. But um, another hypothesis is that a meteor might have struck the plane. However, the statistical probability for that is very, very low. In March 2018, around the fourth anniversary of the flight's disappearance, an individual received strange voicemails and texts with coordinates of a location in Indonesia, somewhat close to where flight 370 vanished, the voicemails in Morse code alluded to an alien abduction. This generated significant media attention as the man who received the text and the voicemails also claimed that some claimed that someone had shown up and taken pictures of his house, although that was never conclusively verified. The calls were placed using a VOIP service and were traced to two hotels in Port Blair, though the identity of the caller remains uncertain. Investigators dismissed the phone calls as most likely being a prank or a hoax. Now, there was some claims of responsibility. March 9th, 2014, day or two after this plane disappears, Members of the Chinese news media received an open letter that claimed to be from the leader of the Chinese Martyrs Brigade, a previously unknown group. The letter claimed that the loss of Flight 370 was in retaliation for the Chinese government's response to the knife attacks at a railway station uh, a week earlier and part of the wider separatist campaign against Chinese control over Xinjiang province. The letter also listed unspecified grievances against the Malaysian government. The letter's claim was dismissed as fraudulent based on its lack of detail regarding the fate of Flight 370 and the fact that the name Chinese Martyrs Brigade appeared inconsistent with the Uyghur separatist group in that region. So, what do you think happened? Will we ever know the truth? Uh, but I, I'm looking forward to watching this MH370, the plane that disappeared. I've been reading a lot about it. Been reading a lot. I heard at least two interviews that that journalist Jeff Wise did, and these different theories that are out there, I find just uh, just fascinating. He was an aviation expert on 60 Minutes Australia. This is in 2018, so four years after the disappearance. He says, he puts forward his belief of what happened with Flight 37. I think every maneuver, every turn that was made in there was
9: something that was pre-planned before the flight ever left the ground. I think that, that all of this pre-planned, the turn south is pre-planned, the destination is pre-planned. The whole thing is,
1: is carried out
13: according to a very
1: deliberate plan. What do you think? 800-848-9222. Jimmy is on Staten Island. Hello, Jimmy.
14: Mr. Morano, hi, how are you? What I remember a long time ago, and I'm so glad you brought this up, because many a time I had thought about this every now and again, but the thing here is I believe that that plane was, uh, there was a general on one of these stations, and he said that he saw, they saw, they found that this plane was parked, and the plane was totally empty, and no one was on it. Do I believe it was terrorist? It could very well be, but I also believe they were just taken somewheres, taken off, either killed or just put into their uh, population and do what they have to do and be subservient to them. And it's frightening. The black hole and all that, I mean, that's ludicrous. They searched that black, that sea unbelievably. That's what I believe. But I always I've prayed for those people for many a year until the point that something else happened in the news that was crazy. But— I believe this place was, like that gentleman just said, it was all set up from the get-go. I mean, you had families, you had babies, you had everything on that plane. And just to have them vanish doesn't sit right.
1: Well, no, it doesn't. It doesn't sit right with anybody. But And that theory makes sense. And my Uncle Caesar, and I looked to find, because I did an interview with him about this. He was a colonel in the Air Force. He passed away. And I looked for uh, the interview before the show, but I couldn't find it. But his theory was similar to yours, but, if I remember correctly, it was, you know, nine nine years ago we spoke about it, so I don't right. remember exactly. But, um, if that's the case, why would a terrorist group not come forward and take credit for the abduction of this airplane?
14: Because it would have caused insanity throughout the country and the world.
1: Right, because the whole, usually terrorists... Like Al Qaeda, for instance, when they bomb the World Trade Center, they want everybody to know that they're responsible, so that they can make a point about whatever cause that they're that they're fighting for. If you're committing an act of terrorism and nobody knows about it, it's not really effective necessarily.
14: Right, but my dear Mister Morano, why does any evil person do what they do? Why we'll never figure that out until the day we're before the Lord. But I'll tell you. Those people, I would have hate to be in their shoes, the fear. And who God only knows, they probably were slaughtered one at a time. We'll never know. We'll never know. But you know what? It leaves us wide open for more of these acts. Thank Believe you. you me.
1: Thank you, Jimmy. Uh, well, I hope one day we do know. And as you heard, Jeff Wise quoted in that trailer I just played for you. Somebody knows what happened. Right? Planes don't just disappear. What happened? Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. That's eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Diana is in Manhattan.
13: Hello, Diana.
20: Hi. Well, here's a whacked-out theory. I really do think that it might have gone through a black hole or into another dimension or even, yes, taken by aliens. Now, in the Bermuda Triangle, when planes disappear and ships disappear, they never find any wreckage. What does this tell you?
1: well uh, I, I know there are a variety of different disappearances in in the Bermuda Triangle, and similarly in the Alaska Triangle as well and uh, I, I don't think we've ever seen a plane of this magnitude, even in the Bermuda Triangle, even um, just disappear of this size. Uh, but I hey, look you look, I think um everything's fair game because if we don't have any evidence to suggest otherwise, how do we rule anything out, Diana?
20: You're right, and I truly do believe that uh, it was something we would consider paranormal in our three-dimensional world. And, uh, well, I guess we'll find out someday, won't we?
1: Yeah, I hope so. Thank you, Diana. You know, in this documentary, they it's a three-part series. They go into three different theories, I believe. Again, I haven't seen it, but I've read a lot of articles about it. They go into that it was a pilot that it was the pilot that had something to do with this maybe the pilot had a medical issue maybe the pilot uh was on a suicide mission they go into the possibility of a hijacking uh, either by the crew or somebody on the plane or that it was intercepted um that it was intercepted by someone so and that's what people consider uh, the domain of conspiracy theories and Things of that nature. But all we have is conspiracy theories at this point, or theories, I should say. So the intercept theory that they go into in this documentary, uh, there's someone who proposed that the U.S. government used special aircraft to jam MH370's communication system, thereby causing it to disappear from the radar, after which it was then shot down. Why? According to the person in this Netflix series, Florence DeShongi, and maybe we'll we'll try and get um, Florence on the program. But according to her, according to her, MH370 was carrying poorly documented Motorola electronics equipment that the U.S. did not want China to have. Now, I have no problem believing that the United States government is capable of any number of shady things. I do not believe that the U.S. would murder intentionally 239 innocent civilians to ensure that China did would not get some electronics equipment. I, I don't believe that at all. And there's a complete lack of evidence to support it, but there's a lack of evidence to support everything. 800 848 in upstate New York, what do you think?
16: Well, I actually believe that... It was a computer that I read in this article, there was a computer that a massive uh, supercomputer that could fit in a divot in the divot of a golf ball. And the patent was uh, shared, wanted the the Chinese uh, scientists that worked in America wanted to share the patent on that. And, And they were taking it all back. In fact, it was their invention and their discovery and, The company in America would not let them take that back uh, because of whatever conflict we have in, um, um, you know, intelligence with the other country there, and um, that that there's they didn't want that plane to land, or even even if it was shot down, they didn't want any tiny computer information and chips or or computers uh, found and able to be hacked into. And I think it was. (laughs) Lasered and and totally disintegrated in the sky. By whom That's do you think? <sighs> Military industrial complex. The, or um, the industrial. The, complex. the Americans. Yeah, I think we have the satellites to do it. I think it. I think we can do it uh, by the blue the beam uh, project. Blue beam. I think we took it out, disintegrated in, in the sky, and there will be no pieces because they didn't want the computer chip uh, discovery and the new uh, thing that is a supercomputer to be found, and, and those Chinese have a patent for it.
1: Well, that is similar to what Florence uh, DeShengi is saying here. I I have a tough time uh, believing that one. I do. I, I'll be honest. I have an easier time believing the aliens are the black hole than that the United States government. as. And, again, there's been nobody more critical of the Pentagon and the military-industrial complex than me. Nobody. I have a tough time believing that the U.S. government would say, you know what, it's worth killing 300 innocent civilians to keep the Chinese from getting this. I, I, I have a real tough time with that one. 800 uh, 848 E. Frank is in the story. Hello, E. Frank.
21: Yes. Uh, hello, Frank. I have a very good theory. Uh, you're not going to buy it because uh, most people don't believe in UFOs or um, space aliens. I've read many, many books since I was eight years old in regards to large cigars, uh, uh, flying ovnis in, in Buenos Aires and in Mexico City and in Arizona. I believe that maybe there was, a, a, when I think it's the third planet in the in the, in the galaxy of Andromeda the, that um, this, the Shamanis came and were disgruntled at the uh, Amelia Earhart Situation. I think you, re- you they found her body in the plane recently, and so they decided to kidnap all these individuals uh, because you said, Frank, this is a transmission that you say could be a hoax that was coming out of the the, the plane, but they couldn't f- find where it exactly came from from that part of Malaysia. So you would assume that the, it landed somewhere.
1: Right. Well, you one would one would think. Uh, but uh, just for the record, and thank you, E. Frank. They never found Amelia Earhart's plane. Uh, they, that absolutely was not the case. They did not find. That's another one of the great mysteries that has perplexed people for years. 800 848 If you want to comment, that's 800 What do you think happened? Why did Flight 370 simply disappear? Loretta is in New Rochelle. Loretta, you saw that uh, documentary. What were your impressions of it?
20: Well, um, you know what? Um, It's very interesting. Definitely see it. I just was browsing around on Netflix, and I said, oh, this looks interesting. I didn't know too much about it um, beforehand, but... um, after there are no answers and you're probably even more confused about what could have happened after you watch the documentary but it's totally fascinating and there's probably like 10 different theories discussed some of them are kind of crazy but um I don't do you know that debris was I think about 20 pieces of debris um has been found off like the coast of Africa on different small little islands in that area but out of those 20 pieces, I think only one or two were like totally proven to be from that plane. And they go by serial numbers, and they have different ways of deciding um, which pieces could be from the plane and which maybe are not. But I think there's only one or two that that they say are from the plane. So that tells me that it's definitely crashed if there's debris, um, and then the pieces that they haven't identified as from that particular plane, they I'm, I I figure they have to be, even though they can't prove it, because it's not like there's plane pieces just floating around and washing up on the coast, you know? Do you know what I mean? Where did the other pieces come from if not from that plane? Right, right. But anyway, yeah.
1: right? So what's your best guess as to what occurred?
20: Oh, I you know, gosh... You know, it, I kind of thought that it went – that it that it probably – well, okay, they say that it went off its original path from Malaysia to China, and it veered off to the left. And that then they're not sure whether it went up or down, whether it went north or south. But um, I guess that's what most people believe, is that it went um, west and then either north or south. I, I think it probably did – Crash. I don't. You know, there's a, one of the big theories is that the pilot was involved. And that right. It was like a suicide mission, but I, I kind of don't believe that. I, 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 I. That's one of the theories I don't believe. But other than that, who knows? I mean, that's what's so fascinating about it is that when it's when it's over, you're like, okay, well, I still don't know. And I mean, that's. It's still a big mystery, but it's definitely worth watching the documentary. Uh, I it's, will. It's I'm check already, it already out. Very, interesting.
1: Thanks, Loretta. Appreciate it. Uh, Paul is in Connecticut. Hello, Paul. Hi, Frank. Good morning.
5: Uh, the idea I have is it uh, possibly could be a water spout, like a water tornado. When we were working in the Bahamas, there one uh, happened, and we uh, the crew had uh, left a video camera on the top deck, and the crew had photographed it or videotaped it, and we didn't have any warning about it, and we were just lucky that it turned off just before it hit us. So, so it's like possibly so, a giant water tornado. But wouldn't
1: they be able to recover the black box or some sort of, some more fuselage if that were the case?
5: Well, I'm thinking that it's, you know, the water could be over 10,000 feet. Deep. I'm not sure how deep the water is out there, but if it's very deep, that it, you know, if it went down into a underground underwater canyon, even an overhang, you know, they need some pretty serious sonar to to go out and really yeah. look. So that would be a more of a natural. Right,
1: it could be, reference. Paul. Thanks. They- Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Hey, we're going to go through your mail next. If you want to send me an email to read, you can do so at frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.m-o-r-a-n-o at wabcradio.com. We'll go through uh, as much of your mail as we can. And then uh, we'll continue with your calls at 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.
0: go to your happy place for a happy price go to your happy price price line it's the other side of midnight with frank morano
1: Houston, or as we New Yorkers call her, Whitney Houston, singing Higher Love. If you ever want to know what kind of music we play on the show, just join our Facebook group. Just search Morano, M-O-R-A-N-O, Radio Fans and Haters on Facebook. That's M-O-R-A-N-O, Radio Fans and Haters. Um, I'm going to go through your mail in just a second. I do have to tell you, I... You know, I told you at the end of yesterday's show that I I felt that I might have a little bit of a cold coming on. So I've been downing this vitamin C and uh, Zycam, you know. And I do find, and I think it's been backed up clinically, that zinc does shorten the duration of the the cold, which Zycam is a zinc-based product. So when I went to bed yesterday in the morning... I put on also a breathe night breathe right strip. You know those things that you stick on your nose and they kinda of pull your nostrils apart to allow your nasal passages to get a little bit more air? Well, I put one on because I figure, all right, I'm starting to get a runny nose. Maybe I should maybe I should do the almost prophylactically, uh, to make sure that I don't uh I don't have a tough time breathing. i will get a good night's sleep or a good day's sleep in my case, and I'll be able to uh function afterwards well lo and behold i think that it did work relatively effectively not great by the way i don't think it made that much of a difference but i finally ripped this thing off because i woke up you know when my my son wakes up from his nap and his mother brings him into the bed to wake me up and he doesn't like that i have this thing on my nose so he's trying to rip it off so i rip it off and lo and behold the whole rest of the day including right now It left a red mark on my nose, the outside of my nose. So it looks like I'm Rudolph the Red-Nosed talk show host here. Now, why do they do that? Why do they tell you? I was using the product as directed. Why do they tell you, you throw that on your nose? They don't say anything about leaving a red mark on your nose. looks like I'm uh, more drunk than usual when the opposite is true. I'm more sober than usual. All right. Uh, A lot of you have written in. I'm going to try and get to as many of these as we can here uh, on this edition of...
13: Letters. Oh, we get letters. We get your letters every day. Mailman, mailman, mail today. Reach right in and pull one out.
15: Those letters. I love those
22: letters. Let's
1: begin with the snail mail first. This is an envelope that uh, comes from Staten Island. Let's see. That's the return address. And the letter says, Mr. Frank, how about an interview with Chuck Weppner, the Bayonne Bleeder? Number two, what do you think about Staten Island seceding from the rest of the city before it becomes unmanageable? Ben, um, I have interviewed Chuck Wepner actually and he was one of my favorite interviews I've tried to get a hold of him a couple of times over the years and I haven't had any luck if anybody out there knows Chuck Wepner I would love to have him back on the show he was one of my favorite people to interview maybe I'll play some uh, some clips of that uh, as far as secession goes I am not in favor of secession I I think Staten Island has made New York what it is and uh, if I were voting I would vote not to secede all right this is one of the many letters we've gotten from Henry in Manhattan, who, uh, by the way, he was a, a big campaigner for National Pie Day. That's how I, he first got on my radar screen. There was a big article about him in the New York Sun years ago, 20 years ago, all about his crusade to get National Pie Day, of a, a real holiday, and focused on it in schools. And yet, as often as he calls this show, as often as he writes to me, he still spells my name incorrectly. He sends this letter to Frank Murano, M-U-R-A-N-O. All right. Uh this is dated February 9th. Dear Frank, I think the points you made about these and like words is pretty important. And I too am often concerned about the growing tower of Babel that uh I, there's a word intelligible that keeps coming up. I believe also that you are unique, unique but by qualified to really dig into this in a way that would serve multiple ends. One, relating to the use of these terms, perhaps including some statistical info on first use. B, or two, uh, he's mixing numbers and letters here. B, who by gender and age, occupation, and noted individuals by name, Began using which term because of your access to some AI systems. I expect you know how to ask the AI question in several different ways and meaning. Uh, Next part. How can usage of the different terms not come up in some court cases? Uh, All right. It's basically a lot about the use of the word like and how we should do a deeper dive Into how language has changed. Thank you for that. Appreciate that. All right. Thank you, Henry. I still have a stack of other Henry letters that he has sent me. Uh, David, email. Subject MH plane disappearance. Your opinion of the U.S. government's moral compass is highly exaggerated. They're a bunch of corrupted, power hungry officials who have no one to answer to. Okay. Uh, Diane writes on the subject, Trump presidential ticket. Bill O'Reilly stated on his TV show that he met with Donald Trump at Mar-a-Lago, and Trump is thinking about having DeSantis as vice president on the ticket. Well, let's think about this. If he picks DeSantis, then they cannot count Florida's electoral vote, because they're both Florida residents. Do you think they're going to do that? Of course not, because they can't win the election without Florida. You think DeSantis is going to move out of Florida? Of course not, because he's the governor. He'd have to give up being governor. Do you think Trump is going to move out of Florida just to take DeSantis? I don't. He could certainly change his residence to New York. But do you think he's going to change his state of residence just to pick DeSantis? I don't. So I think that's very unlikely. Uh, Trump may not know about the 12th Amendment. He may not know the provisions of the 12th Amendment. Uh, Jim writes about my Microsoft Word problem because all of a sudden, two days ago, all my fonts disappeared and I only have the option of Calibri. And again, I said I would restart my computer, but I haven't had a chance to do it. Jim writes, uh, morning, Frank. Sounds like your printer drivers are not set up for multiple fonts. You said that your mom bought you a new PC. Sure, sounds like you should check for a new driver download or check printer selected in Windows. Great show as usual. Keep up the great work. Well, But I don't understand why I would have had access to all of these fonts last week. But now I don't. That's what I don't get. Uh, this is from... <laughs> this is mildly amusing. This is from Mike. Greetings, Frank. I listened quite carefully to your story about the missing pen cap. I found it disturbingly interesting. I think there was an ulterior motive on your part. The sister-in-law pat down. Poor Sarah. I think it was quite clever of you to place the pen cap in the hood of her hoodie. How else would it get there? It sure wouldn't get there on its own, now would it? Not only did you pat her down once, but twice. That would certainly raise suspicion. Then mysteriously you find it. Hmm. Oh, you can deny it, but I'm not so sure. Seems like a Costanza or Larry David move to me. Did you enjoy yourself, Costanza? I mean, Frank, Methinks you did. Women be warned of men named Frank bearing pens and their caps. A pat-down may ensue, maybe even two. Thank you uh, for always great radio, mostly. My cap. Uh, I can promise you that (laughs) this was the least inappropriate pat-down you can imagine. Uh, The The ladies
10: are going to love you. The
1: TSA is much closer to something inappropriate than anything I did. All right, Terry writes on the subject of Ask Frank Anything. Hi, Frank. I look forward to the Ask Frank Anything segment every Friday, but lately it hasn't been that great. It seems it's the same people calling in every week. I think there are a lot of listeners who, for various reasons, cannot call in but might have great questions. I would like to suggest trying one Friday to take email questions only. Maybe let everyone know a couple days ahead. That way anyone who hasn't been able to call can email their question. Love the show. Have a great weekend. Terry. Well, Terry, we do the email equivalent of it on Tuesdays. So if you want to email me a question, email it to me. And I will answer it on Tuesday in this hour. Simple as that. Thank you, Terry. Uh, Let's see. Uh, This is unsigned, I believe. Uh, Good evening, Frank. I'm one of your loyal listening audience in the DMV. I prefer... W.A.B.C. instead of W.C.B.M. Be, simply because I don't have to change the channel and continue listening to the Sit and Friends show. My reason for writing this email is that I hope you could have shows based on the continent of Africa. Most individuals think the continent is one big happy country. No, we are not the United States of Africa. There are whites, brown, black Africans and approximately 52 countries. Uh Each country has its own unique system, culture, and whatever they enjoy. It's actually a bad idea. Lastly, why is Curtis scheduled for so many hours? We enjoy his psychotic (laughs) humor, and it's always refreshing to listen to him rip and read. As you read last night that emails are not answered, I sent an email to Curtis requesting info about his cats so that we could make a donation, but he did not reply. Rest assured... That we will be purchasing items from the store on the weekend in your name. Well, thank you. That's very nice. Uh, on the subject of solar, James Dillon writes: Frank, the wife and I are leasing panels from Momentum Solar. We had a six hundred plus dollar con Ed bill before solar. Our bill is, is now anywhere between eighty eight dollars and three hundred sixty five dollars. We do not. We do have a hot tub, hence the range of the bill. Uh, but it's great. And the rebate is great, but owning the panels will give you a huge rebate. Um, Let's see. Uh, No, do, 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 do. All right. Suggestions to boost listenership from Lawrence. Hi, Frank. A few weeks ago, you mentioned that you're going to expand Ask Frank Anything segment from 60 to 90 minutes, especially in order to read emailed questions. Also, the AFA, I'm positive, is a very is very popular among your listeners. So why won't you add thirty minutes to the very popular segment, mainly for the email questions? Also, please be more generous with the fifteen seconds of fame. And why not, instead of a one or two thousand dollar winners per year, allow for a pass or a wrong answer with a view to awarding smaller prizes at least once or twice a month, thus boosting listeners. And interest in that segment. Well, Lawrence, it's supposed to be rare. It's supposed to be kind of a special thing. Uh, I don't know about expanding Ask Frank anything. I think it's hours a good length. We did two hours once. It was a little long. It was a little long. Uh, Paul writes, hi, Frank. Reluctantly agree with you that Biden won in 2020. It's just that there are so many unusual circumstances like extended earlier voting, wholesale mail-in voting, unmanned drop boxes, et al., Incidentally, I also agree that you're an extremely knowledgeable person. I'm not patronizing you. It's apparent that you possess a wide range of subject matter, kind of like Ben Stein. Anyway, I would like to kindly ask you and Derek Hunter, WCBM talk show host, to engage in a general trivia pursuit contest. I'll bet you that he'd accept your challenge. Folks may even pay to watch or listen to such a sharp match of wits. That could be the show's tagline, match of which. Well, that's a good idea. Derek is certainly a bright guy. Does a great job on WCBM. I'll run it by him. We'll see what what he wants to do. It. All right, Greg writes, Frank, you just said that you spend three hours a day reading emails, and there's so much more that you apparently do each and every day. Question, how many emails do you receive per day on average? And even if you responded with one word to some of them, how many emails do you answer or what percentage do you respond to? How many hours a week do you get to sleep? You know, the hours I get to sleep vary. I would say I generally sleep from about 7 a.m. to 2 p.m. during the week. And then usually Friday or Saturday, that's my opportunity to get a, a little bit of a longer night's sleep. But it varies. Sometimes I find myself awake. Uh, Saturday, for instance, I, uh, Carmine woke up at 3.30 in the morning. I got up with him and I stayed up the whole rest of the day. So it really does vary. Um but I would say I would say I get at least five hundred emails a day, at least. I, I would say anything that's a personal response I I general or a personal email I generally respond to. Um Sam writes, I'm 81 and a caregiver. It's expensive. Maybe you could have someone on to talk about tax deductions for caregivers. Well, I don't know about that specifically, but maybe we'll do something for tax season in general. And that could be one of the questions that we uh, that we get into. Uh, Rita in Reading, Pennsylvania writes, hi, Frank. As much as I don't want to add to your daily email account, I need to put your mind at rest. No AI could ever replace your bubbly personality, charm, and wit. You are such a unique talent with a heart of gold. Keep the faith. P.S. Your conversation and follow-up comments about being reported to the Natural Museum of History was just too funny. AI would never be able to duplicate the way you respond to listeners like John from Brooklyn, a classic. Well, thank you, Rita. That was nice. Uh, Let's see here. Let me try do at least one more here um let's see um let's see there's a couple of good ones here I want to get get a couple in new um this person writes this is another person that insists on calling me Francis Francis father Stu is on Netflix one of those movies you just sit back and enjoy less thinking more enjoyment requires no effort a story well done Barry but I will just state for the record that my name is not Francis. Just call me Frank. It's Frank. You can also call me Mr. Moreno if you if you feel more comfortable. All right. Um, Tom writes, interesting that in light of the past violence instigated by his words and in light of his reluctance to call off the January 6th and your boy meaning Trump now calls for protests, but not peaceful protests, after he's indicted. Anyone calling for protests in the streets for a highly charged emotional issue who wanted the protests to be peaceful would emphasize that desire, especially when rallying a crowd of hotheads like his supporters. It sounds to me as if he thinks chaos and violence would be more helpful to him than peaceful protests. I haven't read my complaint anywhere yet. This is a rare original thought. Do you think I'm crazy? I have heard it a couple other places. Um, I believe Michael McConaughey made a similar point. I think Maggie Haberman did, too. I wish he would have included the word peaceful and said peacefully demonstrate. But no, I don't think he's inciting anyone uh, at all. Any more so than after um, protesters hit the streets, after a police officer wrongly kills an unarmed civilian. I don't think... That's a call for rioting or violence. Protest is something every American has the right to do. I don't think he's inciting anything that's uh, insightful at all, quite honestly. All right. um, If we didn't get to your letter today, hopefully we will on the next edition of... The great Nancy Sinatra, I love this song. Uh, I first heard this song on an Elvis album, and it's from an Elvis movie. I believe it's uh, Speedway 68. I'm a huge Elvis fan and a huge Nancy Sinatra fan, so this song is right up my alley as far as I'm concerned. All right, Uh, I mentioned uh, that I read that one letter that um, was talking about solar panels. Well... Yesterday, my wife had her second meeting in addition to a whole bunch of text and telephone and email correspondence with the second telephone uh, solar panel company that we've been talking to. And we have made a decision to go with this particular company. And uh, they are going to put the solar panels just on the back. We are going to lease the panels. But because they're just going on the back, that means there's going to be fewer panels and so it will not cover 100% of our electric bill. It's going to cover 91% of our electric bill most months, So or on average. So uh, we still have a little bit of an electric bill. But the, um, because it's a lower number of panels, the lease is a little cheaper, which we like. And um, what, we, what I didn't realize, and my wife just told me yesterday, the other company that we were talking to, the one that I had this two-hour meeting with that made me late for dinner with my cousin Andrea that night, that company, if you lease from them, the price of the lease goes up 2.5% a year. So towards the end of your lease, you almost are paying double. You go from paying $125 a month to $250 a month. They call it an escalator. So, needless to say, we were not fans of that escalator. So, we're we're excited about this, and uh, they we do not have to get a new roof because they're just doing it on the back, and uh, it will go up there with no problem. And when you lease the solar panels, uh, if uh, anything goes wrong with them, you uh, there it's their problem. They come and do any maintenance necessary, and things of that nature. So we're excited about this and uh, it's likely going to get us a lot of money back in our taxes and certainly uh, reduce what we're paying in terms of utility costs. So uh, so there's so there's that. Those of you that have been following the solar panel saga, there you are. 800-848-9222 that's uh, 800-848-9222. Next hour, going to talk with former Congressman Steve King. Very controversial guy. We'll get into why he's so controversial and his new book, as well as some other issues. Until next hour, help control the pet population, get your dog or cat spayed or neutered.
0: This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano.
1: Good morning, everybody. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Thanks for listening. We've got a big problem with the trades in this country. I'm not talking about the moves that baseball teams make before that trading deadline in the summer. Nope, 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 nope. America needs technical workers. And right now, supply is not measuring up to demand. Older workers in the skilled trades are retiring and not enough young people are training to take their jobs as construction workers, plumbers and electricians. The construction industry is facing a gap of a half a million workers, according to Construction Dive. That gap is expected to widen As federal money flows into new infrastructure projects around the country, calling for even more labor. The application rate for technical jobs like plumber and electrician dropped by 49% between 2020 and 2022. That's real. That's, I mean, pretty significant in only two years. So why is this happening? What's happening? As America deindustrialized in the second half of the 20th century, Education was reimagined to emphasize seeking four-year degrees. And I have to tell you, that has been a mistake. Now, I went to college. I got a four-year degree. But I think this this, um, idea that every parent, every teacher, every after-school special hammers home to children – college, 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 look at what's happening in our country as a result of this. We have no plumbers. We have no construction workers. We have no electricians. We need skilled tradesmen. Uh, My wife asked me right after our son was born, how would you feel if uh, Carmine would grow up to become a plumber? I said, I think that would be great. I'd love it. You know how much uh how much plumbers cost? He could probably give us a little bit of a deal. And you know how much plumbers make? You make a great living as a plumber. And not have to spend what I spent to go to school. I think it would be wonderful. I want him to do whatever whatever he can do that brings him some happiness. But I I find this alarming. And I would love to know how we can begin to turn this around. I think part of it begins with me and with you, if you're a parent. Begins with parents making clear to children, not that you have to go to college, that you have to go to college, but that college is one option for a young person. And that another option is a trade school. And if you're lucky enough to learn a trade, you can make a very good living in that trade certainly you're better off uh, knowing how to be a plumber or an electrician or a carpenter than you would be getting a degree in art history, so, as a result of america's emphasis on college education, we have, according to Anthony Carnival, the director of the Georgetown University Center on Education and the Workforce, we have a k through twelve system that does create more high school graduates, but it doesn't do any job training. And four-year college is held up as the ultimate goal for every student. I think that needs to change. And I was uh, I was happy that w- when Mike Porcelli was on this show, and uh, he's the best mechanic in the world, and a big advocate of trade education and the like, he said that when he spoke with New York City's new schools chancellor, David Banks, that David Banks seemed to understand the need for reemphasizing trade education. But I'm not sure that that has yet manifested itself into changes either in the New York City school system or elsewhere. Tell me how you feel about this, 800-848-9222, and what you would do to narrow the tech skills gap because we have gotten to a place where there are not enough people to do all the jobs. You know, it reminds me, one of my favorite books, Is the uh, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and they have this planet that's similar to Earth, and they decide uh, the Golgafrenchians is a race of people who sent what they considered to be their useless people away. They sent away all their um, telephone sanitizers, for instance. And uh, they sent them to out into space or to find a new planet or something. But it was a race of humanoid beings who they split their population into three distinct groups. And they sent their third group, the middlemen, on this spaceship that um, would th- basically it was their way of just getting rid of them. So they had the thinkers, they had the doers, and then they had the middlemen that they considered the useless population. And that's the population that they sent away. But ultimately, the Golga all died because of a disease that would have been prevented had they kept the telephone sanitizers there. And I almost feel like we're the Golga Frinchins. We're not sending our tradesmen away, but we're not creating enough new ones. And I have to tell you, that is a real problem. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Some 30 million jobs in the U.S. paying an average of $55,000 a year don't require a bachelor's degree, according to an analysis from Georgetown. Meanwhile, student debt is rising, and only two-thirds of those with degrees say the debt was worth it. So why are we continuing this cycle? We're going to talk with uh, former Congressman Steve King in just a bit. Uh, Let me say hello to Dylan in New Jersey. Hello, Dylan.
19: Hey, how you doing, Frank? I'm well. I I had called last week. I worked in a factory in Neptune, New Jersey. I had actually went to a vocational school to learn my trade as a mechanic in the manufacturing field. You know, so I was going to throw that out there for anybody, you know, me being a 20 year old, pretty much just out of high school for any parents listening, you know, if your kid has, you know, grades that are not, you know, like average grades, maybe see stuff like that, like I used to maybe get them interested in school, put them into a, a vocational school. There's plenty of trade schools out there that could, you know, get their grades up and help them get into a field where they don't have to necessarily go to college right after high school i think that's
1: uh, go ahead finish your comment
19: oh yeah my trade school actually placed me in the job that i currently still work at for the past three years you know.
1: I think that's great advice, uh, Dylan, for parents. Now, w- what do you say to parents that say, look, you know, uh, I went to college and uh, I really feel feel like uh, college is uh, a, a nobler pursuit uh, for people. And I'd love for my son to get a white collar job in, in finance or um, managing a big office somewhere. Uh, what do you say to those that may view surrendering to vocational ed- education as just that, a surrender? and not just another career path.
19: Well, I mean, I understand that. I've heard both sides of it, but it's not. People hear vocational school nowadays, and they think of how it was back in the 70s, 80s. It's like, you know, where all the people go that really were failing and, you know, being bad. It's not like that anymore. It's very, very pretty strict and good school, good teachers, stuff like that. And, I mean, you could go there just to learn a trade as a backup and then go to college, because they prepare you to go to college if you want to. Most of my classmates went to college to pursue a higher form of education. I just decided to go into the field, and then, you know, later on down the line, my work actually provides tuition reimbursement. So even that could save somebody money,
11: That's a
1: great point. Such a good point. Dylan, thanks for calling. Appreciate that. Hale is in Long Island. Hello.
23: Hello, how you doing? I got a little sore throat. Um, I grew up in Richmond Hill, Queens. I was 15 years old. I worked for an electrician. And I, I learned my trade working for an electrician. And I went to Thomas Edison High School, and the teacher was saying, oh, your wires are crooked, your bell wires are crooked. Wait a second, teach. I got a couple of rolls of BX in my trunk. I'm going to run a couple of outlets. I'm going to make more money than you, okay? And you're teaching me my wires are crooked. So I went into the sign business, fixing signs, and I'm 67 years old, and the hardest thing in the world is to find people that want to work,
14: mm.
23: okay, and take these Mexican people that are living in the, the holiday inn, teach them a trade. And they'll they'll help enforce uh, the industry because it's so hard to find people that want to work. And and where did you grow up, Frank?
1: Uh, Staten Island. But when you say the Mexican people on holiday, and you're talking about the migrants, right? Yeah. Well, I I think that's a great option for them. Uh, but uh, just to be clear, and thanks, Hale. Uh, some of the biggest, uh, some of the countries that are exporting the most migrants are not Mexico. You have Colombia, you have Nicaragua, you have Venezuela, you have Peru, you have Cuba even. So it's not all uh, just the Mexicans. 800-848-9222. Dave is in Lockport. Hello, Dave.
24: Hey, how are you doing, Frank?
1: I'm well, thanks. Yeah,
24: I'm um, glad. Uh, yeah, you're talking about skilled trades and all that. Uh, I'm 72. I've been retired for 10 years. I, I went into skilled trades. I majored in shop. And I did quite well. I, I own three houses and I'm, you know, reasonably well off. I mean, I'm not, you know, good, but great. But, you know, I'm not starving. And when I was in school back in the 60s, uh, all the guidance counselors were all pushing college, 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 and the, the dumb kids went to shop. Well, you know, uh, I, I worked in a machine shop for 30 years and... uh You know, some people just don't uh, need college. I mean, I didn't need college. I did fairly well for myself. Raised a family and got grandkids and great grandkids. And I never felt the need for college, but some people uh, are made to work with their hands and their minds, you know, not just push buttons.
1: Well, I think uh, well said, Dave, and I'm glad you're doing so well and uh, send us a postcard from one of those three houses sometime. But I I think that's great. And I'm trying to figure out how this can change. Right. Is it a problem with parents? Is it a problem with schools? Is it a problem with uh, the I, I don't know? Well, I mean, how how do we get our arms around this? Because if the number of tradesmen keep declining at the rate that they're declining. This country is going to be in a position where nobody knows how to fix anything. We're going to have one guy that knows how to, how to unclog a toilet and fix an outlet. And that's going to be a dangerous place for us to be. We're the Golga Dan is in New Jersey. Hello, Dan.
8: Hey, how you doing bud?
1: I'm hanging in there. Thanks.
8: Good. Good. Um, I think the problem starts with schools and government getting in the way. When I was in school, we had shop class, home economics, culinary. We had things to teach us how to live and work in the real world. And now it's the generation with government getting in the way and whatnot. They, they want to teach people what gender to pick and this and that. Man, screw all that. We need to get back to getting actual hands on teaching back in school. And I think that's where, you know, college is a great thing if that's for you. But like the last caller said, college wasn't for him. He picked up a trade. That's what we need to do.
1: Yeah, thank you, Dan. I, I agree. And I'm just trying to g- get my hand head around Where we go from there. Where should people be directing our energy? I'm going to uh, encourage my son to be much more handy than me and uh, try and learn from my dad as much as possible. And my uncle, who both are very skilled at a wide variety of uh, issues and uh, hopefully cultivate a love of some trade or another. All right. Uh, we're going to talk with Congressman Steve King, retired congressman or former congressman, I should say, from Iowa in just a minute. Uh, we'll continue with your calls a little later. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. If you want to comment, Steve King joins me straight ahead.
0: The other side of midnight with Frank Marano. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Marano. Frank Marano.
1: This is the other side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Well, most of you will probably remember Steve King if you paid even passing attention to what was going on in the Halls of Congress from 2003 to 2021. For a lot of people, they would describe him as maybe the most conservative member of the Republican Conference. Other people would say that he was the most controversial member. Others would say that he was both. Well, you know, if there's controversy to be had, I'm all about covering it on this program. Uh, Very, very pleased to welcome author of the book Walking Through Fire, my fight for the heart and soul of America, former Republican congressman from Iowa, Steve King. Congressman, it's great to talk with you. Thanks for joining me.
25: Well, thanks a lot for having me on. I appreciate it, Frank, and I appreciate having a voice out there across all your listeners.
1: So let me begin before we talk about your story and your career and your book. Um, one of your earliest, and I would think most early, controversial votes was the vote on the war in Iraq. And uh, th- this yesterday was the twentieth anniversary of the beginning of the war in Iraq. Everybody has twenty twenty hindsight vision, but looking back then at what we know now, do you have any regrets about your vote on the Iraq War?
25: Mm-hmm. Well, it's one that I've, I've reflected on quite a bit, and especially right now. And uh, I look back at that time. I'd just arrived in Congress and, and barely knew where the bathrooms were, and they're shipping us off to the Pentagon into the tank for classified briefings that having classified briefings in the Capitol. Um, the CIA is delivering to us the threads of, of intel that they had gathered from satellite information, et cetera, and putting the pieces together. Um, I looked at it. It looked sketchy to me. Uh, on the other hand, the inertia, all of that was just swept us all in that direction and swept the nation in that direction, too, as I think you commented. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, if I had a do-over on that, here's where I would have started. I would have started calling them out on the on the intel and saying these little trailers you've got that you say are now going to be used for chemical weapons of mass destruction. Um, they're parked in a little orchard somewhere. We don't know where that is. And, and what's your evidence beyond that? Uh, things of that nature. But the images that I saw a lot of them still are framed in my mind. And and it was sketchy. But on the other hand, I could make an argument that when George Bush said that we'd recently learned that Saddam Hussein was seeking uranium in Africa, that holds up to be true, although I don't think he ever got his hands on any of it. So that would be a nice one to have back and live over again. I wish our nation could live it over again. Mm. Uh, the tragedy poured in on um the the tragedy to the families in Iraq and the families here and around the world it could have been avoided
1: do you Do you fault the Bush administration at all for how they sold this to both you and Congress and to the public? Well,
25: you know I maybe should more than I do, but i let's just pass back in in it kind of bit into the history of my mind at at the time. I didn't make the call at the time. It's hard for me to look back and say, where did they get it wrong? Did they believe what they sent to sent to us? I think they actually, I think they believed it. And um, I have made between nine and a dozen trips into Iraq and Afghanistan, some of that with people that were way on the cutting edge of that. I was one of the first members to go in uh, during the war period of time. And uh, there's, there's one very solid witness. It was a top Army logistics procurement officer that hired some of Saddam's much um, should I say nuclear scientist and put that in quotes, um, also that um, th- that he believed and made a case to me that Saddam thought he had weapons of mass destruction. There's always that question, what did Saddam believe? And you, why, why didn't he just simply say, open my country up to come and see, I don't have any of this stuff. I think he believed he had it. There's at least, wait a minute, there's a chance that he believed he had it. And that might've been the impasse. Did, did Bush believe he had it? And did, did Saddam believe he had it? In the end, we didn't see enough evidence to justify everything that happened. And I do wish it had never happened.
1: Uh, yeah, I think uh, I don't think you're alone among uh, your colleagues in that class of, uh, of Congress in either party. Talking with Steve King, his book is Walking Through Fire, My Fight for the Heart and Soul of America. Congressman, in reading through your book, and I have not read the whole thing yet, but um, it seems to me that this is sort of your attempt to rewrite your legacy, or should I say write your legacy and not have it defined for you by so many of your critics, including uh, the uh, people that you served with in Congress. Now, the sort of official record of Steve King goes something along the lines of January 2019, you do an interview with The New York Times and you're asked about the terms white nationalist, white supremacist and um you say in words or substance white nationalist, white supremacist, western civilization, how did that language become offensive? Well, that interview as you know far better than I do, that ignited a firestorm. You were subsequently condemned by A lot of Republican members of Congress, the now Speaker, Kevin McCarthy, uh, Senate Majority Leader at the time, Mitch McConnell, conservative commentator Ben Shapiro called for you to be censured and to be primaried. A lot of other Republicans who you had called colleagues for a long time denounced either you personally or your rhetoric. Um, You lost reelection. And now you're writing this book. What are you hoping people get out of this book? And what is incorrect about the sort of official tale of the tape of Steve King?
25: Well, yes. uh, First of all, the the attacks that had been coming at me through the media – really began back as far back as 2013 or so in any level of intensity and and I've got some Irish blood in me and that means that you have to use superlatives and hyperbole make the point i made my living in the construction business that means you got to you got to tell things real straight to get things done the way they must be, and that, t- that style is something that's followed me through from all of my adult life. Uh, but um, I made points that had to be made at the time they had to be made, and there was exceptions objections were raised by the left, and over time the people on the Republican side thought that that was becoming a, a liability to them. That's just more or less the oh, a little bit of the narrative that flowed from 2013 up until 19, but. I had been also making the case that we need to defend Western civilization. In 2016, uh, opening night of the Republican Convention in Cleveland, I did a panel there on, get this, MSNBC, and uh, there, uh, the last words that were to be said in that panel is by Charlie Pierce of Esquire magazine, and uh, he said, one could be an optimist and hope that this is the last Republican convention where old white people have anything to say about it. And they were going to pose that segment out, and there I am, seated, a seated member of Congress, and I said, Charlie, those words are getting really tiresome. I'd invite you to tell us all what subgroup of people has accomplished more. And Chris Hayes turned to me with a leer, and he said, then white people? I said, then Western civilization itself, as defined by everywhere where the footprint of Jesus Christ laid down the foundation for civilization. Well, that started uh, um, April Ryan's hyperventilating and like she had the vapors and Charlie's trying to talk. Well, anyway, that's when I learned that defending Western civilization was a hot button and that the left would just, just uh, I'll say, they would hyperventilate uh, about def- against anyone who defended Western civilization. But I had been defending it and advocating for it for a long time. That's why those words came immediately to me. And that's what I was doing in the interview with the New York Times as well. It's very clear that I did an interview with Christian Science Monitor that was actually published after the New York Times, but done a week or so before the New York Times that laid out the same case where I'm saying George Soros and the left are weaponizing terms like white nationalist, white supremacist, Nazi, racist was already nationalized. But I said, but Western civilization. When did that language become offensive? There was a pause between those other the the, the I'll just call them the um, pejorative uh, 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 labels of uh, white nationalists or white supremacists, which certainly I reject. I paused between those, but they didn't put any hyphen or any, any kind of common in between those things when they typed it into the New York Times paper. And they already knew before that article was published they were going to use that article to launch an assault on me. It was planned in advance. I had known about that since about the third week in the previous November that they would try again to try to attack me. And Trip Gabriel, who um, wrote the story for the New York Times, uh, said in a telephone conversation the following Monday, I didn't think that was going to be the words that did it. He knew his article was going to be used against me. That's what he wrote it for. But he didn't think that would be the term that would cause everyone to get up in arms.
1: If you look at some of your detractors, there are whole pages of uh, of things that you've said going all the way back uh, to your time in the state Senate where they try to create a pattern of you being a white supremacist or anti-Semitic or uh, hateful in some manner or another. I, I have no interest in uh, reviewing every single one of these quotes and asking you to explain or contextualize them or uh, respond to their validity. But I do have a question about why so many of your Republicans, including a lot of people that you would kind of served with and soldiered with on the right for so many years, would join the ranks of those that would rebuke you and, and denounce you. What, what was it about what you were doing or saying that led so many of your colleagues to hang out to dry?
25: Well, it was um, it was the virtue signaling leadership. Uh, that began this, and they didn't. They didn't wait even an hour. Of all of those people that are there, and by the way, I have a big poster with their with pictures across. Each one of them is called. This poster is titled "The Unforgiven." Um, it mostly Republicans at higher level. and You name some of them. All of them had my cell number or were looking me in the eye on a regular basis, and not one of them called me to say, "Did you say this, or what did it mean?" Not one. Um, they knew when the party line came down from leadership, they were supposed to do and say, and they followed that. They were not independent thinkers. If you look at them today, um, but Ben Shapiro, about you know, he's a virtue signaler extraordinaire. And uh, he knee-jerked on this thing quickly, but um, he's he's gotten stung a little bit now by the, ca- the cancel culture, too, and I think he might have a different opinion. But, but in the end, if you can't ask a rhetorical question about why Western civilization has become such a target, uh, then how does our civilization survive if it's going to be based on freedom of speech, freedom of thought and expression? And uh, there's a there's a scholar out of Kansas City named Jack uh, – oh gosh, he'll um, come to me in a second. But he's a Ph.D. out of Purdue, and he re- he went down into every one of my quotes and uh, drilled down to the original, into the context, and came back and wrote an article that said any conservative would have been glad to and proud to have made, said those things within context. And he did, he defined the meaning of them. Some of them, was very hard to find the origins of it because they made them up. So um, that was, by the way, just very independent in Congress. Uh, They didn't really come to me and ever twist my arm for a vote because they knew I was going to make an independent decision, and I'd tell them what the decision was, and that was that. Um, I didn't need their money. I had had the the three previous elections. I had won without spending a dime on advertising and by 60% plus or minus two points. And so I had reached the place where – You'd want every legislator to be, and I've told the young people coming into the into the arena, if you want to be an independent voice in Congress, you need three things: you need voters that will support you, and you need a fundraising network out there that is independent that they can't just cut that off, say from the from the PACs. And the third one is a national media voice so that you can tell the truth and punish leadership if they attack you. I had all three of those things, and they were very, very effective. And it took a nationwide effort to shut that down. In fact, it may have been even partially global in in its reach. But it was a strategy and a plot that they pulled together. And uh, too few of my Republican friends stood up with me. But I also chaired the Conservative Opportunity Society for 16 years. And that's an off-the-record, doors-closed breakfast meeting that I hosted with just uh, many of the uh, top named people in the country as as guest speakers. And that room, even though nobody would talk to me on the floor of Congress in front of the C-SPAN cameras, that room would fill up on Wednesday mornings at eight o'clock for folks to come in and be part of that breakfast. And I saw no difference in their personalities toward me in that room with the doors closed, but they were quite concerned about being caught up in this negative hit on me and they knew not to step up and defend me. Um, for example, with the consequences, Louis Gomert did stand up and defend me, and the following Sunday or a couple Sundays later was martin luther king jr sunday and in the largest Baptist church in Louis Gomert's uh, congressional district in Texas, he he was scheduled to be the lead the top the speaker that delivered the the message the sermon that day and the pastor of the Baptist Church, a white pastor by the way, called Louis and canceled him and said. Nobody that defends a racist will be speaking from my pulpit. That was the consequence that Louis Gohmert paid. The rest of them got the message, Frank.
1: We're talking with Steve King. His book is Walking Through Fire, My Fight for the Heart and Soul of America. So just for the record, you would walk away from that label of white nationalist and certainly not identify yourself that way.
25: Oh, absolutely. And and in fact, there's a chapter in the book about the lives of Tanzanians that I was instrumental in saving. And I introduced and pushed the legislation forward that would save the most black lives of any legislation that's ever been introduced and carried to any distance in Congress. Uh, That record's there. Uh, Black conservatives stood up to defend me. Um, And because they had been through a similar fire, be accused of being being uh, Oreos and those kind of uh, disparaging things. So there's a lot of record there. People that stood on my side, a lot of them were black conservatives, Reverend Bill Owens of the Black Pastors Organization, and uh, Diamond and Silk, God rest Diamond. They're both great friends, and you can go on down the list. One of them I admire a lot that we don't hear enough from is, um, is Christopher Hayes. And excuse me, Christopher Harris, he's the president of the uh, Unhyphenated Americans, And so um, there's plenty of people there on that side that were there to defend me. But um, the people at the top of the political echelon at the national and the state level were all in rank, about a dozen of them. And all it would have taken would have been, say, someone like a Chuck Grassley to say, wait a minute, what are you doing here? What's the facts and the substance behind this? But no one would listen to me. Once this came down, there was nothing I could have said that would ever alter what they had set up to do that's why I had to write the book, Frank.
1: I know um, you alluded to your construction background and sort of the plain speaking way that folks talk with one another in the earth moving or the construction business and how that doesn't necessarily tidally fit in with uh, the way uh, Beltway politicos talk with reporters. It, given you, what you've experienced and what you've been through, do you have any regrets at all on the language that you chose to use at any point during your tenure in Congress?
25: You know, I, I don't. That's a, that's a straight-up answer. I don't regret the language I used. There were times when I used it that it brought about a result that just had to be, and under one circumstance would be when when they were ready to move the, the act that would have legalized the DREAMers, and it was the, the Senate's 68 votes in the Senate to pass their huge Gang of Eights amnesty bill, and uh, I used some language there, no profanity ever out of me, by the way, but I used some language that caught all of them by, I guess, surprise and stunned. And uh, I've been accused by Democrat and Republican senators both as being the one who killed their amnesty bill back in about 2013 or 14. And So, no, I don't regret that. I said and did the things that needed to be said and did. Everyone was honest. None of them were biased, and, and none of them had any threads of – none of them had racism in them or white supremacy in them. They were labeled that way by people that couldn't stand to stand up and face me in the actual arguments that were there, and sometimes they were so effective that it did something like kill that amnesty bill.
1: We're talking with Steve King, former Republican congressman from Iowa, author of the new book, Walking Through Fire, My Fight for the Heart and Soul of America. Congressman, what do you Brent, Sorry, go Brent.
25: ahead. Could I, just, just to add to this, I'd like to get this piece in and if we're ready to transition, but um, the thing that I would do differently is this. I believed all the way up until about two weeks before the primary that I lost in June of 2020, all the way up to that, that – honesty and facts and reason would have impact on Kevin McCarthy. I should have recognized him as the person that called the hit or one who was strongly supporting the person that called the hit on me and fought him directly rather than trying to negotiate with him because he strung the thing out. He lied to me directly and said that he was going to go and put me back on my committees, and that would have been all it took to solve the primary that I would lose later on. But he lied to me directly, and he went to the press in a few days, and he lied to the press as well and said, I never had that conversation with Steve King, but I've got notes, I've got tape, and I've got witnesses. And so I should have taken him on directly and fought him directly. I didn't do that, and I probably would have lost that too, but it would have been at least targeting the right the right bullseye.
1: What are you hoping people take away from this book?
25: Well, I'd like to have them know that you know, you can go forward with all the level of altruism that's there. And I grew up in a law enforcement family. My father lectured to me from the the Bible and the constitution and the code of Iowa and how it all structured together. And, uh, uh, I don't I don't know that it was coming at this from a, a naive way. Everybody's naive to some degree or another. But if you walk the line as straight as can be and you function according to your commitments and the promises you make to your constituents and you get reelected over and over again because you're doing the job they asked you to do, the job you proposed you would do, the one that reflects my internal full-spectrum constitutional Christian conservatism – That's too much for some people that are in this business for something else. They want to be able to manage and control. And when they could not get – And they could not get their elitist establishment candidates through the Iowa caucus, the first in the nation caucus, because Steve King had too much leverage for that to happen. Um, That was another force that came against me. So that, what shall I call it, that that constellation of elitists at the top of the party and the operators within the political campaigns, state and national, decided this guy's got too much power and we have to do something to take Mm -hmm. him down. It was almost a a universal effort on the part of the people at the top. And when I finished my book, I thought all of these people that are here, not one of them stood up for the principles that I thought they had enough integrity to do. But in the end, No, not one of them did. The facts are there, and no one has challenged one word in this book. Every word is utterly true. It's footnoted, and it's documented.
1: One of the issues that has sort of been reignited recently because of Nikki Haley's candidacy and because of the fact that she keeps bringing this up is the uh, Confederate flag issue. It it was reported by a journalist for the the Iowa starting line that you displayed the Confederate flag on your office desk, even though the Iowa— was a part of the union during the civil war is that true did you display the confederate flag
25: yes right next to my iowa flag my u.s flag my catholic flag my Gadsden flag and my pow flag and there's a good reason for that frank um i walked into my office one day and uh big old screen tv debate was going on on the floor and i asked my staff what's this debate about and they said Democrats are bringing amendments to take the Confederate flag down anywhere where there's a federal wall that's there, any any nexus that they can do that. And they're disparaging the South and and making making the flag about slavery. And uh, so as soon as I heard that, I ran down to the floor, and it's all the way through the tunnel, and I got on the floor, I was puffing, but i got I was recognized. And uh, I made a speech down there. It's a matter of the congressional record. It's about five minutes long and 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 it is this that the deal at Appomattox was that the South got to keep their horses and go home and farm. They had to stack their long arms. The officers got to keep their their side arms and when the when the when the document was signed by General Lee and general Grant of uh, a regiment of Union troops fired a volley to celebrate, and Grant said, "Shut that down." We're not going to be doing this celebrate from this day forward. These rebels are our countrymen. They got to keep their Southern pride, and it was being taken away from them, and they were being labeled as all people that were advocating for slavery, and and it was just wrong to do that. And so when I got done with that speech— uh, then I asked my staff, go get me a Confederate flag. That's going to be a symbol of freedom of speech. And uh, so <laughs> a whole bunch of them refused to do it, except my, my Jewish fellow that was in the staff. He went and he got me a Confederate flag, and, and I put it on my on my desk to be a symbol of freedom of speech. And you look at it today— they have, they have taken that flag down all across the South. I just came, I drove down to the Keys of Florida and back again over the last five, six weeks. I only saw one Confederate flag and that was at the Memorial in Northern Mississippi. Uh, they've taken it down and they've, they've changed the definition of what that flag means. If you would Google, um, this is back then, if you would Google Southern pride, once you got past a few barbecues, everything else is that flag, which is actually the flag in Northern Virginia. But we call it the Confederate flag. When you, can, when you Google uh, slavery, you don't get a single flag on that screen. This is, this is Google images, and seven or eight pages of those images, not a single Confederate flag when you Google slavery. It never meant slavery until they turned changed the definition. And the other thing that they did was our leadership was so afraid of the debate they shut off the open rule, and this government 's been running on continuing resolutions ever since
1: one of the things that uh, that we saw happen to you is uh, at your at the height of your controversy after Congress voted to denounce your remarks. You were a man with no committees. Uh, these days, there's another Republican with no committees in Congress, and that's uh, Congressman George Santos. Obviously, he arrived to his level of controversy in a much different manner, um, my, mostly through resume fabrication and outright dishonesty. But I'm curious, as a guy that knows what it's like to be a, a, a an army of ones, sort of a, a man with no committees, does part of you empathize when you see what George Santos is going through now in Congress?
25: Well, only to the extent of what are the facts around George Santos. And um, as at this point, I don't know what they are but there's so much out there. It seems to me there's got to be substance on some of it. And, but Kevin McCarthy defended George Santos and said that he's elected by his constituents. And therefore um, they're the ones that decide who's going to represent them. And since he'd just been elected, he was going to, he was going to keep him in the conference. I wasn't aware that he didn't get any committee assignments. I thought he'd gotten some um, minor committee assignment or two, but I will say this historically in, in searchable history, I, I George Santos, notwithstanding, because I don't know all the facts about him, but in searchable history, there was only been two other times that Republicans have removed any one of their members from all their committees that has happened by Republicans. And in both of those cases, they became convicted felons. And I was treated like a convicted felon for a misquote in the New York Times.
1: One of the things that uh, is still true of the Republican primary contest these days is that Iowa is a pivotal state. As the first in the nation caucus, it sort of sets the stage for the next few primaries and maybe even the whole election. I know initially you were a Ted Cruz supporter, but then you were an enthusiastic Trump supporter in the general election. Looking Mm -hmm. at the Republican field shaping up as it is now, what direction— are you leading among uh, among all the candidates that are in the race or poised to jump into the race, and who do you think is going to fare the best in Iowa?
25: Well, that's sure a good question. It's, it's fairly early in this process up, and uh, I've, uh, I've been contacted by two campaigns at this point. I'd point out that Uh, They must believe that my political capital has been restored, and I think my book, Walking Through the Fire, has done a lot to do that. And uh, I know there's a poll out there that asked that question by one of the candidates, and they just came back and contacted me today and asked for some help. So they must have gotten a positive answer. But uh, as this sets, I want to see these candidates compete with each other. I want to see ideas out there on the debate stage, and I want to see caucus goers sort those ideas out and provide their input to bring some new ideas perhaps. But if if I had to call it today, Donald Trump stands stands at the first place in this state. And uh, as far as uh, DeSantis is concerned, and I served with him on every year he was in Congress. We were on the Judiciary Committee together. He has all he's He is presidential timber. I don't question that at all. Um, He's got a a lot of the right instincts and all the capability to be an excellent president of the United States. But for right now, I think we've got we've got weaponized government. Um, We've got the the executive branch of government using itself, using against its political opponents and may happen again this week if there is an indictment of Donald Trump. But when they raided Mar-a-Lago back on August 8th, that was pretty much it for me. There's no pretense any longer. This government's got to be cleaned up. And if there's anybody that can do it. Um, it would have to be Donald Trump, who who has he, he knows who they are. Uh, I think he knows what to do about it. And there's a bit of vindictive nature on the part of Trump. But I'm not ready to step up and endorse Donald Trump yet. Um, we've got a couple things to work out personally before that might happen. But I, I want to see him come here campaign, compete. And I I sure want to see our government squared away so it's back on a constitutional foundation. This corruption is the worst that I know of in the history of this country.
1: Lastly, sir, you alluded to the fact that uh, you're still popular, according to some opinion polls and to some of the people that want votes of Iowans. I'm wondering, you're still a young man and still very up on a, a lot of the issues that Congress is dealing with these days. Would you ever consider running for Congress again from Iowa or running for some Else.
25: Well, going back to Congress, I would have to figure out how to build some kind of a power base with Kevin McCarthy as Speaker. So that doesn't look very, uh, very bright to me. And uh, where I am right now is I'm, I'm doing a whole lot of consulting work. It's all I'm doing it all pro bono, and I just tell them, no, don't pay me. I don't want anybody to be my boss, but it keeps me busy throughout full days. And um, as the presidential campaign unfolds here, I expect to have some more involvement. I'm not reaching out to it. I'm waiting for it to come to me. But, uh, you know, I'm kind of the last person to learn what my real image is today in Iowa. Because you just can't always filter it when it's on you yourself. But many times it comes to me and people say, all the the capital you had before, it's all back. And Iowans are, Iowa Republicans at least, are resentful of what Kevin McCarthy and others did to deny them the representation that they had voted for. And by the way, uh, I had been elected, just elected, when Kevin McCarthy pulled this number on me in January of 2019.
1: Steve King, former Republican congressman from Iowa, author of the book Walking Through Fire, my fight for the heart and soul of America. I appreciate the time. I hope we can talk again in the future.
25: I look forward to it. Thanks a lot for your time, Frank.
1: Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you can give me a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. 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 midnight.
0: midnight. 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 It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
1: other side of Midnight, I'm Frank Morano. It's funny, one of the things, uh, speaking of the small-town nature of so many communities in America, they always talk about mom, apple pie, and the flag. Now, I think you know, given my previous discussions on this program, I am a big fan of the apple. And this week, I tried uh, for the first time... Based on a a listener recommendation, the cosmic apple, I have to tell you, it is phenomenal. I'm absolutely loving it, but that's neither here nor there. One of the things that I've always enjoyed doing from the time I was six, seven years old is when I finished eating an apple, taking the apple core and throwing it towards dirt. And my hope, at least in my six-year-old brain, which clearly has not matured much in the ensuing decades, would be that one day an apple tree would sprout from there. You'd, You'd see an apple tree grow from there, and you'd be able to pick apples. Never happened. I've been throwing apple cores in backyards and all sorts of other places for a long time. Never happened. So I said, let me go online and actually research How, if you can grow an apple tree from apple seeds that are in your apple. Heaven knows. I have all these apple seeds. What can I do with them? So sure enough, I go online. And apparently what you have to do is put them in your refrigerator for three weeks inside a damp paper towel inside a plastic Ziploc bag. And then after three weeks, the seed will have sprouted. And um, you can then put it in a seed starter or something else. So what I've been doing is saving all these apple seeds. And so far, I have two different sets of apple seeds in our refrigerator. And my wife is not at all pleased about this, that uh, with this apple tree growing scheme, about where I might grow these apple trees. She's not at all happy about it. But here's what I'm not happy about. I've been researching this, and it could take years Before one of these little apple seedlings, even after it sprouts for three weeks and after you plant it in dirt, it could take years for it to grow into a tree and a lot of years of care and attention. But here's the here's the beef. If even if you go to all this trouble and you plant something that does grow into a tree. Even then. Whatever fruit comes from that tree is not going to taste like the apple that you planted it from. Now, How much of a ripoff is that? Apparently it has to do with how we get those apple trees that apples come from. They're grafted and stuff. So it could be a wide variety of different apples that come from the seed of a tree that is is your apple, which strikes me as really unfair. So I'm curious if anybody has had any luck or any success planting seeds that have come from an apple and what grew and what the fruit tasted like, if anything. 800-848-9222, 9222 uh, I want to remind everybody, please um, you know, follow me on Facebook, facebook.com slash but I am seeing this Frank Morano imposter all over the place again, and he has, he changes—you know what he did? He put sort of an accent mark over the O in my name. I forget what you call it. It's not an accent mark, but it's one of those squiggly lines over the O in my name. So I guess that's how he counts people, but he's using my picture. I've reported him to Facebook, but he's still reaching out to people that follow my page. So if anybody – if I ask you to direct message me or send you a friend request, that is absolutely not me. Do not be fooled. If I ever want to engage in a private conversation with you, I will always say email me. And I put my email out there for everybody to see. Frank.Morano at WABCradio.com. That's Frank.Morano at WABCradio.com. So Friday, I was listening to the radio with some friends of mine. And all of a sudden, a controversy ensued. I'll explain why and hopefully get your take on it in just a bit. Until next hour, your influence counts. Be sure to use it. other side of midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Um, so I was in the car with some friends of mine last week and we were listening to the radio. We were listening to one of the talk stations and someone came on. I, I honestly don't remember who it was. It might have been uh, Judge Jeanine Pirro. It might have been Judge Andrew Napolitano. It might have been Judge Richard Weinberg. It might have been someone else. But I think it was one of the first three that I mentioned. And everybody is calling this person judge. And I happen to be in the car at that very moment with two, uh, well, well, with one high-ranking official in city government. I'm not going to say who it was. And another judge. And I was shocked the way both of them reacted. They both said, ugh. I hate when people do that. I said what? When they both hate when you take someone who is a retired judge and call them judge. The New York City official, he cites someone that he knows that's the head of a city agency, or or I don't know if he's the uh, if, if he's the head of a city agency, but he's uh, uh, on a a part of a city agency. And he signs all of his emails, even though he's one of a committee, I think, he signs all of his emails as judge so-and-so. And he said, you know what? I hate that because it's making the rest of us feel like even though we have the same job that this person has, that we're supposed to give him this sort some sort of deference because he's got judge in front of his name and his email signature. The other person that was in the car with me was a judge. That person said, no, look, first of all, I think it's very weird to introduce yourself, even if you're a sitting judge, as Judge, hey, hi, I'm Judge Frank Morano, uh, rather than just say, hi, I'm Frank. P- he said other elected officials don't do that. They just say, hi, I'm Vito Facella." They don't say, hi, I'm borough president Vito Facella." I'm Eric Adams. I'm, I'm not Mayor Eric Adams. So he said, but especially when they're retired, you know, you don't need to mention it every eight seconds. He says it comes across as a little pretentious. So it got me wondering, and I reached out to a couple of other judge friends of mine, about, at both active and retired, about how they feel about keeping that title of judge once you retire. And lo and behold, I found very interesting, and this goes in multiple states, not just New York, but a whole bunch of different states. I found that a lot of the current judges, they don't like former judges walking around calling themselves judge, uh, like Judge Napolitano does on his podcast or uh, like Judge Pirro does on television. Because I always thought this was an open-and-shut case. I always thought I'm of the belief that once you retire, unless you retire in some disgrace, that you should be referred to as whatever your previous title was. And if you were ever a judge, you get that title of judge, even after you retired, and people should refer to you as judge. As a sign of respect, that was always my view. But after listening to these guys... And doing a little independent research, I'm starting to think differently. Uh, This is a judge friend of mine. I'm not going to say what state uh, this person is from. But this is a judge friend of mine who we've disguised his voice a little bit. And he talked about how he thinks former judges should be referred to.
5: Frank, it's one thing for someone to refer to a judge or a former judge with their title in a social setting. But when former judges refer to themselves with their former title, without provocation, especially to turn a profit, they denigrate the judicial profession and really just make a fool of themselves.
1: What do you think? Do you think after someone leaves the bench, assuming it's not in disgrace, assuming they retired, they hit the mandatory retirement age of 70 in New York and New Jersey, or if they were a federal judge, they just made the decision to retire? Should you keep referring to that person as judge? And why or why not? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222.
23: A question. Since before your son burned hot in space and before your race was born, I have awaited a question.
1: Believe it or not, remember when I had a panel of retired judges in, you know, on the radio here? I actually asked that question. And Judge Phil Strenary, who is very well-respected civil court judge and retired state Supreme Court justice, here was my question, here was his answer. You know, Judge Strenary, I always wondered, and people have, have raised uh, questions about this before, what is the protocol in terms of addressing a former judge? Are you always addressed as judge from the time you retire until the day you die?
0: I, once you're a uh, judge, you uh, always have the uh, – referred to as honorable – you, you always have the title of honorable. I think with all elected officials keep that uh, as a title, honorable. Although I should point out that when I used to have Yankee season tickets, uh, I, it came to me and it was addressed as unbearable. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Judge Gray,
1: what, what about it? At w- what point do you become Jim, if any?
26: You know, I've always thought your eminence was an appropriate title, <laughs> but I have, so far I haven't gotten very far with that. <laughs> hey, you happens in my household right. you know it's it's nice that, that you get the respect we live in a fishbowl every every day of my life since I was appointed. I have to be aware that I'm representing the judiciary. If I'm going to go to the hardware store on a Saturday, I make sure that i dress dress up better than I would otherwise it's it's a it's a real wonderful privilege to be able to be a judge and you have to. Bear it accordingly. You know, be careful of your humor, be careful of your of what you say. But uh it's a I'm grateful to have been able to have been a judge for twenty-five
1: years. So you notice Judge Gray, because I spoke to two judges there, Judge Phil Strenieri and Judge Gray. Judge Gray didn't really answer my question. He says he carries himself a certain way because he was a judge, but he doesn't go and say they, yeah, they should be called judges. I thought Judge Trenary's answer was an interesting one where he says their title is the Honorable. And in some of the research that I did, uh, that is precisely what came up. If you go to formsofaddress.info, which tells you how to write to anybody, how to address anybody, there's a section how to address a retired judge. Now, this is mostly when it comes to letter writing. But this is what it says about how to address a retired judge. Unless he or she left the bench in dishonor, retired judges continue to be addressed in writing or listed in a program as the honorable blank. They're addressed in conversation or salutation as judge blank in every social situation. So basically he's saying, yeah, if you run across Judge Andrew Napolitano – You should call him, and this is what I've always done, you should call him Judge DiPolitano. And when I met Ken Starr a couple of years ago, long after he left the bench, I referred to him as Judge Starr. And I got the impression that he wasn't used to that. He said, oh, Judge, oh, if there's a judge around here, I better be on my best behavior. He kind of made a joke about it. So if you're listed in a program, it should say the Honorable Frank Morano... Judge of the blank court and then the years that you served and then the envelope to address a block of mail or even if it's an email, the honorable blank and then the full address and then the salutation should be dear judge so and so. So that's a little bit of what both of them are saying. Uh, It's a little bit of Judge Neri saying you're always the honorable and it's a little bit of Judge uh, Judge Gray saying basically, yeah. You address them as judge. I spoke with Judge um, Ladoris Cordell, retired judge of the Superior Court of California. This is what she said.
4: The, the judicial canons, which are the rules under which sitting judges have to abide, uh, say so that you don't never use your judicial position to gain an advantage. So that means getting traffic ticket, cop stops you. Well, I'm judge so and so. That's totally inappropriate. Um, so you're never to do that. So once I left the bench, I did get asked that question. You know, are you still judge, and I, I say to people, uh, well, professors are still professors after they've retired. Doctors are still doctors after they've retired. Why should it be different for judges? But the one difference I had in, in being a female in the judiciary, and at the time I started, uh, there were very few women on in the bench, um, and when male judges retired from the bench, most people had no problem always referring to them as Judge so and so, Judge so and so, out of respect. And yet, when women, and I remember I was questioned, same kind of thing, same situation, um, I would be asked, well, uh, do you still want to be, are you still a judge? So, the women, this is again a few years back, were being asked whether or not we were still judges where men were not. Uh, so. Uh, my rule is that when I speak publicly at events and I'm recognized because I'm a judge, yeah, I'm judge, so-and-so. But other than that, uh, we are not—I don't take my position in, in any way of giving me an advantage. Uh, when I'm out among people I don't know, I never say that i was a judge. If someone else finds it that out, that's fine. But I think we, uh, as the judge just before me who spoke, said, yes, when you're on the bench— you are a judge all the time on and off and to uh, carry yourself uh, with to able to get respect from everyone and to maintain integrity in, in the institution. But afterwards, eh, not so much. We can be who we are. The rules, the judicial canons, do not apply to us. Uh, so uh, I'm not caught up with the title. Uh, I appreciate that you're calling us judge tonight because that is a subject matter. But we're not. I had no problem with you calling me by my first name.
1: So, um, a friend of mine who is a former elected official, um, who nobody calls him by his old title. They just call, call him by his name. He basically said, um, perhaps. Uh, so, um, he basically said, if you're in a different occupational capacity where people are equal or should be, you send the message that the judge is higher in stature than the others, and that's wrong. And then I asked this person, what about Judge Janine? Because this person's a fan of Judge Jeanine. Do you think it's appropriate for her to call her show that, meaning Justice with Judge Janine, and have everyone on Fox call her that? And this person says, I guess it's fine as it's not an equally power-sharing board where one isn't seen as higher than the others. Do you get what I mean? It's not something that I have pondered on, but I'm trying to convey where it's not appropriate. And then he said, if you go back to private practice in a courtroom... Should the sitting judge, the real judge, call you judge? And that's an interesting question, and it's one that they have now addressed in Ohio. Ohio actually went so far as to specifically prohibit former judges from using that title in court. June of 2013, Ohio's Board of Commissioners on Grievances and Discipline issued an opinion which dramatically limited the use of the title judge for former judges. The exact question presented to the board at the time was whether it was appropriate for former judges to use judicial titles after leaving the bench. The thinking apparently was that since a former judge isn't a judge anymore, the title isn't needed for identification purposes. Invariably, the use of a judicial title outside of judicial service is for personal gain or advantage Or to create a benefit or recognition for another. So the Ohio Board of Commissioners is saying basically the same thing my friend is saying. The opinion did say it was okay if lawyers, friends, acquaintances, or strangers call a former judge by title due to habit or customs of etiquette or a prior relationship. But noted that the practice should not be encouraged. You shouldn't say, um, if you're retired, oh, I'm I'm Judge Frank Morano. Th- that's at least in Ohio. So I asked Judge Herb Do- uh, Dodell, retired Superior Court Judge, also California. This is what he said.
17: Well, let me ask it this way: There's no rule either way with regard to the use of the title. Well, in Ohio, the I tell people I'm a retired judge. I make it very clear that I'm not on the bench and that this is what I was doing before. And I think I think it was Jim Gray who said. The fact is, when you start out as a judge, you stay as a judge. You don't change. You're either an engineer or you're not. And the fact is, nothing really changes. And in terms of the use of the title, I think it's a matter of respect. You would call a doctor, doctor. You wouldn't call him Harry or Jane or Mary or anything else. You call them by their title, whatever title they had when they started. And there's no reason that they shouldn't be afforded that I, I don't want to call it luxury. It's not a luxury. But it should be afforded that respect. No reason why they shouldn't be.
1: 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. I came across this uh, this article. There's a there's a legal ethics forum um, where people talk, post about legal ethics. And there was a post from 2017, March of 2017. It had to do with actually... Uh, Judge Napolitano, which I who I happen to have a great deal of admiration for. This is what uh, the poster Steve Lubay wrote. By now, everyone knows that Fox News contributor Andrew Napolitano was the source behind the recent White House claim that the British intelligence service known as GCHQ colluded with President Obama to conduct surveillance of Donald Trump in the midst of the 2016 campaign. The British government has rightly branded the assertion nonsense, saying it was utterly ridiculous and should be ignored. Napolo's scoop was also disavowed by the actual news branch itself. But even as the story itself is repeatedly debunked, some reporters and commentators continue to refer to its originator as Judge Napolitano, which only serves to lend some unwarranted credence to this false report. It is true that Napolitano once served at, on the New Jersey Superior Court. But he resigned in 1995 and has not held judicial office since then. Nonetheless, he insists on being addressed as judge. And he is said to have demanded this on uh, Fox News set to be re- resemble a judge's chambers. His website, which he calls JudgeKnapp.com, refers to him as Judge Napolitano. In virtually every paragraph, as does his bio, On the Fox News website at the time. And this person writes, the American Bar Association has cautioned against the exploitation of judicial titles by former judges, noting it is wrong to use judge or the honorable. This person even says it's wrong to use the honorable in connection with law practice. In its formal opinion, the ABA uh, Commission on Ethics and Professional Responsibility noted that continued use of the title is misleading. Because it may be misunderstood by the public as suggesting some type of special influence or to create an unjustified expectation. In fact, said the ABA, there appears to be no reason for such use of the title other than to create such an expectation. So although the ABA opinion addressed only the use of honorific in law practice, some states have gone further. I mentioned Ohio, which this person writes, uh, also citing Ohio. And then other people disagreed with it, and he said, look, um, the there is a difference depending on the nature of the former office because other people disagree with this. They say people get called ambassador. People get called senator. Everyone understands that governors and senators have been political figures, according to this person. So there's no exploitation when they use their formal titles Uh, former titles for political purposes. Nobody expects President Clinton to be anything other than a partisan Democrat. Judges, on the other hand, are supposed to be objective and politically neutral. Yes, I know that's not strictly true, but many citizens still idealize judges and certainly respect them more than politicians. Consequently, the use of a formerly held judicial honorific can appear to lend greater weight. So what do you think? If you meet a former judge, do you call that person judge? Should I? Because what I have always done is use the title judge. I'm curious if I should discontinue it. I, I'm starting to be persuaded that maybe I should. Where do you come down on this? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Jack is in Manhattan. Hello, Jack.
22: How are you, Frank? I'm retired law enforcement. And when if I ever ran into them, a judge that I knew, and he recognized me, or whatever. I would always just refer to him, Your Honor. Nice to see you, Your Honor. How are you? You know what I mean. I, that's all I would. I wouldn't use Judge.
1: Why? Why? Why is Your Honor, in your view, different from Judge?
22: I just think it's more of a and a social thing. It's more of a, an acknowledgement of them, but not formal. When I say Judge, it's it's more of a, a formal thing. It's just something that I was taught for years and Uh, years.
1: All right, so you you were taught this where? In the the police department or something?
22: Well, just, you know, when you're coming up with the older guys, you know, when they're training you and stuff like that. So
1: if you see Judge Napolitano for lunch or something, uh, you would say, not Judge, can you pass the salt? You'd say, Your Honor, can you pass the salt?
22: I'd say, Your Honor, how are you? Nice to see you.
1: Right. But if you needed his attention, if you said, your honor, do you want uh, do you want some mustard? You would say it that way. You wouldn't say, judge, do you want some mustard?
22: If we were were together at a table, let me, you know, that I would just say, you know, "Hey, judge, do you want you want the mustard? But in an initial greeting, if we ran into each other on the street or whatever, I would just simply say, your honor, how are you? You know, and and that would be it, you know.
1: All right. Well, thank you. So this person writes uh, on this, the legal ethics board. Nothing can be done about Napolitano's insistence on calling himself judge, but there's no reason for anyone else to go along with him. Fox News describes Napolitano as its senior judicial analyst and the use of his former title is obviously for the purpose of enhancing his credibility. Um, Politico, The Hill, other media outlets refer to him as Mr. Napolitano or Andrew Napolitano. So, what do you do? Retired judge. Should they be called judge? Yes, no, and why? Larry's on Long Island. Hello, Larry.
11: Frank, when I was in my early 20s, I got picked to be on a criminal court jury. Um, A woman was a defendant, attempted murder on her husband. Um, The judge, he's, he's passed a long time ago. He was a man in his 70s then, a no-nonsense judge. In the seven to ten days that I was there in that courtroom, he never smiled. Um, unfortunately, the 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 case that I was on, um, there was a mistrial. Years later, I ran into him at a stationery store, not far from me. I was in Hicksville. He was in Bethpage. Uh, it was crazy because. I wanted to just say something to him, but I did not want to approach him as your honor or hello, judge, because maybe he he looked at me and, oh, my God, am am I somebody who you sent away for years? I didn't want to upset him, so I waited for the opportunity to stand next to him, and without looking at him, I just said, your honor, I was on the first, and the defendant's name Jerry Wachtel jury and he was okay. I didn't want to make him nervous. Uh, that he was your honor. He was absolutely in my mind immediately your honor. But one quick thing, and I have to tell you, this was so funny. This the visual was incredible. So my 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 interaction with this judge was no nonsense man in his seventies. He's on the bench. He's in the black robe, and he never smiled. And he was wearing, Frank, honest to God, he was wearing jeans and a Mickey Mouse t-shirt. Oh I wow. swear to well. hey, I mean, he's human. In my view, he should be entitled to that.
1: Uh, I, L- Larry, absolutely. I, I appreciate the uh, I appreciate the call and the perspective. On Twitter, Brooklyn Johnny weighing in saying, "You idiot." To continue using the honorific judge to retire judges is like calling you reverend because you got a phony online pastor's license. But I am a reverend. That's the bottom line. I should be referred to as reverend. 800 848 Johnny is in Baltimore. Hello, Johnny. Hey, good morning, Frank.
12: I like this topic. Uh, I've been in law enforcement for 20 years and uh, several years with the sheriff's department and we kind of do what the other gentleman said if we see a judge and he's retired we just go by your honor (laughs) but you do have to kind of be respectful and know where you're seeing him you know if you see him in a crowded ballpark you don't just want to walk up and say hey hey your honor real loud so other people can hear and the reason we don't want to do that is because you never know some people they don't like law enforcement off duty some people they don't like judges they may well, have been put sure. away by a judge. Well,
1: but Johnny, like, well, I mean, I'm likely to face this situation now and again. Let's say I interview someone that's a retired judge, uh, and uh-huh. and and I'm interviewing them for their expertise or, or their legal analysis on a certain subject. L- let's say the Trump thing, right? Um, should I, Should I call that? Per- I've always called that person judge. Should I not well, call that person judge? Should I say, uh, Your Honor, what do you think of this Trump indictment?
12: I think your honor sounds a little bit better. I would be like your honor um or per, you could first say, you know, to your audience this is a former former right. judge. I always would
1: do that. Sure.
12: Yeah, sure. and then I would just call them your honor once and then then that would be enough. Like I think they know that you respect them once once you formally address them as their position. And I do agree with what others have said. If you were a doctor or say you were a brigadier general in the Army for 25 years, I would still call you general out of respect.
1: Oh, yeah. No, no. As would I. And that's why I've. that's always been my modus operandi when it came to judge as well. Paul is on Staten Island. Hello, Paul.
13: (coughs) Hello? Hello, Paul. I didn't wake you, did I? Uh, I'm sorry, brother. Good morning. It seems to me that if the judge wants to be called judge, you call him judge. If they don't, you don't. Because it seems like both they got both sides going. Some don't want to be called judge and some do. So go accordingly. Well, but
1: so... Okay, you know, that that actually strikes me as pretty reasonable, right? Uh, that actually strikes me as pretty reasonable. But let, let's say it's you're... Not in tr- they didn't earn the title. Right, right. You know? Well, uh, But let's say you're... And then should everybody get it? Like, let's say you were a housing court judge. If you were a housing court okay. judge and you want to go around calling yourself judge, should the rest of the world honor that even after you're no longer on the bench?
13: You, you, you still were a judge all those years. I mean, have you seen what housing court judges go through?
1: Yeah, well, that's that's fair, Paul. Thank you. Eight hundred eight four eight. Get back to work, uh, Paul. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Vito is on Staten Island. Hello, Vito.
24: Hey Frank, how are
26: you? I think a judge should be called a judge, no matter what. My issue is doctor.
22: When you call someone a doctor, and they have a PhD and not a real medical doctor. That shouldn't be. That's just my opinion. Well, well how come? How come? Yeah. So you think someone's a doctor, you think that
26: they're a medical doctor. You well, know, when you think of doctor, you think of doctor, medical doctor.
1: Yeah, well, fair enough, Vito. I I don't agree with that. I think if someone gets the PhD, they've earned it. They should be, they should be doctor. Um although if you remember my interview with Ernie Anastas, he said when he got an honorary doctorate, they checked him into the hotel as Dr. Ernie Anastas and then somebody called his room with a medical issue. So maybe you're right on uh, on that front. I, uh, I like doctor, I, and, and if I ever get an honorary doctorate, I'm going to walk around calling myself doctor, 100%. You know, um, I just watched this Elvis movie with Tom Hanks as Colonel Tom Parker. Colonel Tom Parker was not a colonel, except he got an honorary um, title of colonel by the governor of Louisiana, I believe. He made him an honorary colonel in the Louisiana State Militia. If the governor ever makes me an honorary colonel, I may walk around calling myself colonel. Although I would feel silly addressing real troops and stuff, calling myself colonel, but Colonel Parker worked for him, right? He made it all brand Eight hundred eight, nine, two, two, two. We're going to do the thousand dollar minute in a moment. Tom is in Suffolk. Hello, Tom.
26: Hey, Frank. Good morning.
1: Uh, good morning. How are you?
26: I'm okay. I just wanted to comment on a couple of things. Um, First of all, I don't, I don't think you're going to be getting any honorary titles anytime soon. But that said, um, I wanted to bring up... Well, why up not? Like I that. can get an honorary
1: title. Mm-hmm. Why not?
26: All right. I don't know. You got that kind of juice, like?
1: Well, I don't know. Maybe not. Um... All right. Me neither. Uh,
26: anyway, okay. So, uh, no, I wanted to bring up, like, um, like, so one of the gentlemen said that uh, he would call a judge, Your Honor. The only time I would ever address a judge as Your Honor is if I was addressing him in the courtroom uh, or in a in, in his chambers. But uh, in a public setting, it, w- it would be Judge or the person's first name, depending on the relationship. But even, if if the title, even if they're retired, even
1: if they're retired,
26: even if they're retired, correct. So- However, just out of respect, like if you if you worked with someone and they were your boss, like. Uh, in law enforcement, and you said uh, you would call them Sarge or Lou, if you knew them as that, you know what I mean? If you knew them as that for X amount of years, and then uh, they were no longer in the title, that's how you knew them. You still give them the respect. Uh, But I I also, like uh, Hillary Clinton, they they still call us Secretary
13: Clinton.
1: Right. Well, yeah. uh, And we did a previous segment on – Keeping prior titles, because some people took issue with uh, the fact that I would call Ambassador Bolton ambassador, even though he wasn't currently an ambassador. And, and people have varying views, senator, governor. I, I am always of that view. Uh, you know, it is different with judge, as the Ohio folks have made it out, because you you are still a lawyer, even after you're no longer a judge. So you could be in a position to... Potentially, you know, potentially benefit yourself by running around calling them yourself judge. There was a situation in uh, California, actually. um, When a a retired judge. No, excuse me. It was actually. Yeah, no, no, no. a, A former judge in California ran for state attorney general while a sitting judge. Okay, And he was disciplined in part for his campaign's use of his judicial office. Uh, They said he shouldn't have been using the term uh, judge on his literature. Meantime, I was once campaigning with a guy who had been a family court judge, and he was running for civil court, and we ran across another judge. And see, all these judges hang around with each other. And this was a judge that was currently on the bench, and he said to the guy that was running, he said, why doesn't your literature say judge on it? Say judge so-and-so. And uh, I said, uh, and this person says, well, is that okay? Can I do that? He says, as long as you were a judge, you can put that on your campaign literature. Well, apparently in California, they don't necessarily agree. All right, we'll uh, we'll take one more on this, and then we'll do the $1,000 minute. George is in Manhattan. Hello, George.
15: Hi there. Frank. Uh, listen, if it's legit, the person got it legitimately, not like, your, uh, the, uh, you know, what you got and uh, considered a reverend to some and can marry people. I have about a, uh, more than a dozen of those, by the way, just for your information. Now, so do you want me to call you the Reverend
1: George the next time you call him? No, it?
15: you don't have to. No, you don't have to. Thank you. In fact, others have tried it. I've said, uh, you know, I'm not a real reverend, although i studied some literature, by the way. Now, here is the most important point, is that you are bringing up that fact regarding judges. How about a so-called person who works weekends on Sundays, you know, at the station, who calls herself a judge, I'm sorry, a doctor, and she has... Uh, not even a real PhD, but from a diploma mill that doesn't exist. It's called Warren uh, 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 College, and they would uh, provide you diplomas, you know, PhDs, uh, Doctor of Divinities, etc., for a few dollars. You know, really? 50, 60 Wait, what, dollars. what
1: college is that? Warren College.
15: Uh, Check out W-A-R-R-E-N. It used to exist. It doesn't exist any longer. All right. Well, uh, uh, thank you, George.
1: If anybody knows of a college that I could just get a quick online Ph.D., and I'm willing to do like a couple of weekends worth of courses, but if I can get a Ph.D. from the University of Baghdad or something just by sitting through a couple of online courses, I would love that. I would love that. I'll run around calling myself Dr. Moreno like crazy. All right those of you that are holding you 're welcome to keep holding, and then um, we will uh, we 'll get to your calls when we can. meantime, if you want to try and win a thousand dollars, we will give you an opportunity if you can be the seventh caller. To 800 848 9222. That's 800 848 9222. We'll give you an opportunity to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. And if you do that, you'll be $1,000 richer. Go ahead and be the seventh caller to 800 848 9222 right now. We'll play the $1,000 minute straight ahead.
0: The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Frank Marano. Hear ye! Hear ye!
21: The coat's in session! The coat's in session! Now here come the judge. Here come the judge. <laughs>
1: This is Shorty Long uh, singing, Here Comes the Judge. All right, without uh, further ado, it's time for...
0: The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank! Well,
1: let's say hello to Tom in New Jersey. Hello there, Tom. Good morning, Frank. Morning, Tom. Tom, have you heard this segment before?
24: Yes, I listen to it all the time.
1: Okay, great. So you know what to do, right? Right. All right, you ready to go? Let's go. Okay. Name a planet in our solar system other than Earth. Jupiter. What is my first name? Frank. Who is the current governor of the state of Florida?
23: DeSantis.
1: When discussing beer, what does IPA stand for?
23: Oh, I see it all the time. Uh, uh, You got me, Frank. You got me there.
1: The A is a synonym for beer.
23: Ale.
24: Ale,
1: right. Any guess on the I or the P?
24: Independent?
1: Uh, unfortunately not. Uh, Tom, it is India Pale Ale. India Pale Ale or Indian uh, Pale Ale. Oh, uh,
26: uh, I see it all the time, Frank. It's Jesus, because I always wonder, what does that mean? You know? Yeah,
1: it, it's, a, it's a style of beer. It's actually, I really enjoy uh, IPAs. I know it's a controversial beer. It's a polarizing beer. I'm not the biggest beer drinker in the world, but to the extent that I'll have a beer, I'll have an IPA. Tom, I want you to hang on. Give Kenneth your information. We're going to send you a consolation prize, okay? Thank you, Frank. Thank you. Appreciate you calling. Play again soon, okay? All right. Um, So, last week, I and many other members of my family were eagerly anticipating the return of Ted Lasso. And sure enough, Ted Lasso, as uh, was the case when I spoke with uh, Daniel Feinstein the other day, it did come back for its third season. Most people believe this is going to be its final season. If you haven't seen it, it's a wonderful show. It's on Apple TV, and uh, it stars Jason Sudeikis as this sort of lovable football coach turned soccer coach. It's a fish, typical fish-out-of-water show with, um, you know with, with an American trying to coach a British football team, which we would call Soccer. Uh and I really enjoyed it. I thought it was uh I thought it was very I thought it was very solid. I think it was uh, a good way to start the season and just to give you an idea of how how into this show our family is. So, my sister was over on Friday and she came over and we're having some Indian food and this is 2 days after Ted Lasso had debuted. And she's having dinner with my wife and me. And uh, I asked her, because I know she watches the show. I said, what did you think of the first episode of Ted Lasso? And she said, what? It's back? And she immediately um, texts my father and stepmother asking if they knew it was back. And I guess they didn't realize it was back either. And I said, well, we can watch it again here. We wouldn't mind watching it again. She said, no, it's sort of a tradition that I have with mom and dad. And then she raced out of my house as as soon as she could to get back home to watch that first episode of Ted Lasso. Uh, so I did think it was a good... There's a lot of different storylines going on, but I still found it very... Uh, an enjoyable show because it's this episode was sort of used to set up the storylines for the whole episode, for the whole series. But if you didn't see the uh, the first two seasons, I would strongly suggest that you go back and watch the uh, first two seasons. Now, it just so happens that the cast of Ted Lasso, many of them anyway, were at the White House yesterday for a, a day of discussion about mental health. And um, the, the second season of Ted Lasso deals a lot with mental health issues in general, specifically mental health issues in sports. But uh, sure enough, the cast of Ted Lasso joined the Bidens at the White House to promote mental health. And now there was sort of a, a back and forth between the press secretary, Corinne Jean-Pierre, and this African journalist. And I know he was on Tucker yesterday. So now that has gotten all the attention rather than the event itself. Now, again, whenever there's actors doing something about the roles they play – I realize they're in a unique position because they're so well-known. And if you had a mental health counselor, we probably wouldn't be talking about it on the radio for Mental Health Day. But the fact is, actors don't necessarily know anything more about mental health than we do. Just as if you're an actor on Star Trek, you don't necessarily know more about space travel than we do. But yet, sure enough, they get to go and do all this cool space stuff. There's some some things that happen because you've played a certain role. So be it. Here's a little bit of uh, Jason Sudeikis at the White House for this Ted Lasso event on mental health. I
9: just want to say that on behalf of myself, uh, everyone here with me today, and the numerous other folks that that, uh, it takes to make uh, our show Ted Lasso, it it is sincerely an honor to visit the White House and to have the opportunity to speak to the President and to the First Lady about the importance of mental health. Um, So, like, no matter... Who you are, no matter where you live, no matter uh, who you voted for, we all, probably, I assume, we all know someone who has, uh, or have been that someone ourselves, actually, that's struggled, that's felt isolated, that's felt anxious, that has felt alone, right? And it's actually one of the many things that, uh, believe it or not, uh, that we all have in common as human beings, right? And so um, that means that we, it, it's something that we can all, you know, and should, talk about with one another when we're feeling that way or when we, when we recognize that in someone feeling that way. Uh, so please, you know, we encourage everyone. And, and the big theme of the show is like to check in with your, you know, your neighbor, your coworker, your friends, your family, uh, and, and ask how they're doing.
1: So uh, I, I think that's certainly good advice. The, I think Jason Zudeikis was probably smart in that he didn't take many questions because what's he going to say? I mean, as I said, he's just an actor, not just an actor. I'm not taking anything away from being an actor. But he doesn't have any special mental health uh, training. He he took just one question, and it was about Kansas City, uh, as, as I understand it. So uh, I think it's great that they did that. Whatever you can do to bring more awareness to mental health, I think that's great. And it really is such a wonderful show. It's a real – even season two, which had some darker moments, it's a real feel-good show. And – um I think it was my wife in the first season who said, watching that show, it makes you want to be a better person. And uh, I would agree with that. Eight hundred eight 848 I'll squeeze in a couple of quick calls here, and then we'll get to 15 seconds of fame. Eddie is in Babylon.
13: Hello, Eddie. Uh, at the end of this call, I'm, I'm going to tell you how to get you an accoutrement to your uh, uh to, to your 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 vestige of um, a PhD and everything, I, I always call them Your Honor because if you call them Judge, they're going to look at you and maybe start judging you, Frank. Uh, so it's an honorable. I don't know what it takes to be a judge. First, you have to be a lawyer. Well, there's all and, well,
1: not in every state, by the way.
13: No, oh, okay, 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 absolutely. Well, also with you. I'll have to uh, go to my physics professor who screamed at the class once, man, I am not your teacher, Dr. Gishwenta. He said, I'm your professor. So that's what you do. You profess knowledge to us. And he said, I don't teach you. You can only teach yourself. You take knowledge, you take it in, you digest it. And with you, if you want something, I would say what's quick and online you could be ordained, and you could be the Reverend Frank Morano, and then it would protect you from Curtis a little bit. <laughs> well, no, I am ordained online. Are you? Yeah, Are you? I am the Reverend Frank Morano. Oh, how cool. You've never said that
1: before. That, that is absolutely not true, Eddie. I have said that, but thank you. I appreciate that. Um, but uh, I would also love to be the Reverend Dr. Frank Morano. I think once you get that title, they give, you, they give you Mondays after the weekend of your birthday off. Right, uh eight hundred eight four eight nine two 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 Carol is in New Jersey. Hello, Carol.
4: Hi there, Frank. I'll be quick. I worked for lawyers for six years, and I a couple of times judges called in, and I had no problem calling them judge, but when you go to court you you have to call the person your Honor. No, but, Carol,
1: I'm talking about retired judges.
4: Oh, okay. Well, you could still call them a judge.
1: All right. Well, thank you. I think I will. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. 9222 Harry is in Huntington. Hello, Harry.
19: Yeah, this doctor thing is one of my pet peeves. When I was in college, which was a long time ago, you only called someone doctor who was not a medical doctor on campus, never off campus except for medical doctors. And that was the rule, and I don't know when that's changed.
1: So why then do you call a doctor, a medical doctor, a doctor outside of a doctor's office then?
19: Well, I mean, it's outside the campus, so it's fine. I mean, if if your doctorate is in Slovak folk dancing, I'm not going to call them a doctor. Why
1: not? That's what I'm saying. Why? Why? Why shouldn't you call a doctor in Slovak folk dancing doctor?
19: Oh, I don't know. You know, there's this very like to get an MA, for instance. I had to go three years to get my MA, but somebody in teaching can do it in one one semester. So yeah, even that, I have a problem with. You know, they see. go around. The- I see.
1: So yeah. I, I think uh, sort of some of what you're raising is all doctors are not created e- equal.
10: <laughs> exactly.
1: Okay, fair enough. Okay, that's a good point. Uh, Robert in Suffolk's been waiting a while. Hello, Robert.
17: Hi, Frank. Uh, I texted you about the judge thing. That's like a mismanaged kind of thing. Uh, also about the vocational education. I got that in high school and I'm very glad I did. I changed schools, high schools, because of it to get that vocational education. And it has helped me and guided me throughout life, getting jobs and also doing things, being able to succeed in life and, and do things like around the house, fix things. Oh, no, you know, I don't doubt it. it I, I don't it, doubt it, it Robert. Should be required. It should be required. And it should be necessary, mandatory in schools like 11th and 12th grade. Because not everyone is college material. Like like another caller
1: said, they're better with their hands and with their minds. Thank you, Robert. Appreciate it. We're going to do 15 seconds of fame in a moment. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. You can be heard on any subject you want for 15 seconds. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead.
0: The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
1: place to hide If the days are long,
22: when the sun goes down, you might need a place to call your own.
1: Somewhere out there on the other side of midnight, you might hear a voice of The Other Side of Midnight by Stevie G and the Election Interferers. Uh, This is The Other Side of Midnight. Uh, By the way, this song's available on iTunes. Just search The Other Side of Midnight on iTunes. I think it's 99 cents. Uh, But we're going to give you an opportunity to be heard for 15 seconds on any subject you'd like. As it stands now, there are two open lines. They'll fill up quickly, so start dialing. 800-848-9222 as we do.
0: The other side of midnight. This is 15 seconds of fame. Fame. Joe.
13: Joe. Hey, Frank. Hey, Frank. Great show. Let's all stand behind Donald Trump and pray for him that he gets through this. Thank you. Tony. Yes. Frank, I can't believe
5: that the Messiah thinks he's friends with Mayor Adams. Mayor Adams hates his guts. He's too sharp for that. Must be paid for a play. Roy.
8: Uh, Sid did a great thing throwing Salilua off the radio. He should keep him off the radio. You should keep him off the radio because of the way he talks about you. And Katimatidis is saying that bullying is okay, which it's not. Steve. Spidacular.
13: Sid's a moron. Sid's a moron. Troy. It's AMCCS. Say what you can. It's AMCCS. This AMC ANC stock, because the was going down today, but it should be able to go $22,000 here. Raji! Hello!
15: Hello! 15 seconds. Dr. Oh, no! Shame on WABC referring to someone who has a PhD from a
1: melee. Leo! Hello, Reverend!
2: Uh, I realized, Frank, I was uh, at night Delivering very often uh, to women the Plan B that could be problem. How often they're using it instead instead condoms as, if, as they're actually killing twice the baby. That's Plan B.
1: I think you mean. And finally, Rainy.
8: Hi, I would just like somebody to set me straight why Xi Jinping and Putin are. Moscow, and we're going after Trump in America. Can somebody set me straight on
1: that? (laughs) Not me.
8: I don't understand
1: it. Thank you, Rainey. Um, That might be one of the subjects that I bring up with uh, Sid Rosenberg a little later at 7.05, so uh, tune in if you can, if you're still awake. If not, I'll be back tomorrow with Dr. Sky. We'll talk about what's happening in space and a bunch of other things. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Frank Moreno. Good day.